So some of you were here yesterday when we spoke about the ancient sources on the history of Hanukkah, and I gave you a little tasting menu, a little sliver of what life was like in the Second Temple period, but we focused on these, these sources that uh, were um, discussing the second century BCE history of Hanukkah, right? So really from 200 BCE, when the Syrian Greeks take over Judea, and we focus on 175 BCE, when Antiochus is 84, issues all these anti-Jewish legislation uh, against the Judean Jews, and uh, we discuss all the way through 63 BCE, that's the end of the Hasmian dynasty. So today we're going to broaden our scope, and we're going to look at diaspora life in the Second Temple period. And uh, we'll make a timeline like we did yesterday, but it won't be the exact same timeline because we're looking for different things. And one of the most important points that we're going to make is that really from the exilic period, so from 539 BCE, when Darius, the Persian king, says to the Jews who have been in exile, you can come back and rebuild the Second Temple, from that point on, Judaism is spreading and spreading and spreading throughout the world. Okay, we have source sheets over here. Welcome. Oh, this is going to be great. And so I didn't mention this yesterday, but I could have because it's very relevant. The first century BCE Roman historian Strabo says that wherever you go in the Roman Empire, you will find a synagogue. Now this is very important because I think a lot of us look at Jewish history as we have the first temple period, we have the exile beginning in 587 BCE, this is the exilic period, we have the second temple period, and then we have the rabbinic period, and everything before the rabbinic period, before 70 CE, is focused on temple life. But that's not true, because the concept of a synagogue actually arises at the end of the exilic period, and by this time, when the Persians conquer the Babylonians and say, you can uh, come back to the second temple, Jews are gathering together regularly. The synagogues are not used for liturgy. They're not used for regular, <coughs> standardized prayer that comes in the rabbinic period. No. But the synagogues are used for regular meetings to read the scriptures. No. So at its core, the idea of a synagogue is regular, established time to gather together and read the scriptures. Only later is the liturgy set, and then it takes centuries and centuries for the liturgy to be established. Okay, but we have this idea of synagogues, and they're coming up, cropping up all over the world. We have um, a source sheet for you. Oh, you already got one. Very Sorry. powerful. Okay. So this is the exilic period. We have, like we said yesterday, the Persian period until 334. <coughs> Under the Persians, diaspora and life is very good. And it's at this time that Jews are moving all over. So they're moving to Egypt. They're moving to uh, Italy. We're going to see a uh, big Jewish community in Rome by the first century CE. They're moving to Antioch in Syria, which is just north of the land of Israel. They're spreading out, spreading out, spreading out. By the middle of the Second Temple period, the majority of the Jewish population, which comprises uh, at least four or five million Jews, the majority of the Jewish population is diasporan. This is very important because when the rabbis start writing down their codes of law, right, the Mishnah and then the, the two Talmud, they are catering to a reality in which for centuries and centuries, 
Judaism has been a diasporan religion. And even though we have lots of rabbinic tractates about how to administrate in the temple and what kind of sacrifices to bring, the reality is that Jews are not um, and haven't for centuries been identifying and expressing their Jewish identity vis-a-vis temple service. It really just wasn't the case in the Second Temple period. You do have evidence that hundreds of thousands of Jews made pilgrimages three times a year, and there's been incredible archaeological excavations that show the walking paths from different directions to Jerusalem. So we know Jews visited, but they were diasporan Jews, right? They weren't um, making Aliyah. And uh, that's actually an interesting question that I've spoken about in other lectures. Was there a doctrine of Zionism in the ancient world? Probably not. Okay, so for a different, for a different discussion. Was there this concept that you have to move to Israel? So we have over a million Jews in Egypt in the Second Temple period, and we don't have evidence that they're en masse making a move to Israel. They are donating money regularly to the temple. Oh, that's why. I'm sorry? The rabbis were concerned about coming for their trying, you know, for their periodic visits. Yeah, and the rabbis are very critical. They gave them more time. Right. So today we're going to talk about the Jews in Egypt. So I just ask one question. Where did people, this is also from scripture, where did people pray? So that's a very interesting question. Is was prayer part of synagogue activity? So uh, this is under big academic debate. Actually, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls has been very useful in illuminating this question because there did seem to be at the site of Qumran where the Dead Sea Caves were discovered, 11 caves on the northwestern corner of the Dead Sea. There does seem to be a set liturgy, but that set liturgy is similar but not identical to the rabbinic liturgy. So probably by the first century BCE when the uh, uh, population of Qumran was thriving. There was a liturgy, but not necessarily a normative liturgy oh. that all Jews were using, right? So probably the Jews of Egypt did have some kind of liturgy. It might have looked very different than what the rabbis ended up with. Okay, so today we're just going to do a little bit more of the timeline, and then I want to focus on three communities, very important communities in Egypt. And these communities are Elephantini, which you might have heard of, because these very ancient Jewish documents were discovered there. Uh, we on top, well, no, I'm going to do this in chronological order. Alexandria, a great city, and currently still a great city, very big city in Egypt, second biggest city in Egypt, and Leontopolis. In all of these cities, um, there uh, were Jews living at the time. <coughs> first, before we get to that, let's just review the timeline. So this is the Persian period until 334. Alexander the Great destroys the Persians. And then his, after his death, his kingdom splits into three main parts, right? We talked about this yesterday. The Seleucids in the north, the Antiochus in Asia and the east, and the Ptolemies in Egypt. And so we're going to call this the, the Greek period. But it's not a unified Greek empire in the way that sometimes we think of it. Now, uh, in 175 to 164, we have the Hasmonean Rebellion. And the Hasmoneans have autonomy over Judea until 63. Okay, so this is the Hasmonean period. In 63 BCE, Rome incorporates Judea into its empire, first as a client state and then as a full-fledged province. Okay, Roman period. All right. So now we're going to talk specifically about Egypt. 
Um, okay. Just Not tell sure me when. Can. When what? El I know Elephantini states. But we're going to do that right now because that's exactly what we're about to do. Okay. So when Darius, the Persian king, says to the Jews in Babylonia, you can come back and you can um, resettle Judea. Like I said, many of them don't come back to Judea. In fact, we know about this from biblical evidence, right? Ezra and Nehemiah complain that the Jews aren't coming back. And we have a whole list of families who do come back in Nehemiah. Right? And that's only, it only tallies about 43,000 people. That's actually a very tiny percentage of how many people uh, were in Babylonian exile. And among the uh, different places that these Jews ended up in uh, was Egypt. And Elephantini was settled uh, in a few decades within the Persian uh, conquest of Babylonia. And uh, at Elephantini, uh, we have about 175 papyri that have been found. So papyri, um, you know, from the word papyrus, are on documents made of reeds, and so in dry climates, they really, they can last for centuries and centuries and centuries. And some of these uh, papyri, which were written over a thousand years or more, uh, some of these aren't Aramaic, others aren't Greek, Coptic, which is a language that uh, first and second century Christians used, Latin. The Aramaic documents, what makes them very valuable is that a lot of them are dated. They'll say, like, in the fifth year of the king, Darius, the son of whatever. And so we have very specific dating. And so some of these letters, and we're going to look at them in the, in the um, source sheet that I gave you, have explicit dating, which is actually amazing. And um, we know that in around 500 BCE, a Jewish Persian garrison was settled in Elephantine. This is in, an island in the Nile. Okay, so it's inside the Nile. Small island. And these were Jews who worked for the Persian army, but they wanted to establish some sort of permanent Jewish life there, and they end up doing so. Um, beyond these members of the Persian garrison, we have evidence of women and children and families there. And the astounding thing about Elephantini is that they did not establish a synagogue. They built a temple. Ooh. And so we think of the Second Temple being, period being just this one temple in Jerusalem, and God forbid you should ever consider building another temple. If you wanted to do something else, you had to build a synagogue. There were synagogues in the Second Temple period, but there was also this temple. And we don't have evidence. Well, we just don't know, necessarily, what Jews at this time living in Judea thought about this temple. But the Jews in Elephantini did not think that they were heretical. They thought they were the most pious of the pious. Which brings up the question, what did they, uh, how did they relate to the Jerusalem temple, right? Was Jerusalem the holy motherland that you know, we think of it today? Or did they kind of think the Judean God, like any other God, right? The, the Israelite God can be worshipped wherever you are, right? In the ancient world, um, building multiple temples to the same God was routine, right? So, so we have this, this temple. The temple is um, damaged or destroyed in... Um, we think in around 409 BCE by anti-Jewish clowns, some goons, and we have a letter written to Persian authorities by the Jews dating to 409 BCE asking for formal permission to rebuild the Jewish temple. So we have the pirate to talk about this Jewish temple, which is amazing. Um, that is not the only temple that we have in Egypt. 
is Neanderthalus. So elephant cheetah settled in around 500 BCE by the Jewish community. In Neantopolis, which is settled in around 200 BCE, a Jew by the name of Anias, who's functioning as a priest in Jerusalem, is ousted by a Hellenized priest named Jason. Jason bribes the Greek authorities for the official position of high priest, which he is not entitled to. Anias, who we'll see, is presented in the sources as very God-fearing, very pious, gets official permission from the king, um, from the king of the Ptolemaic Empire, Ptolemy, to build a Jewish temple in Leontopolis. So now we have a second Jewish temple in Egypt, which is astounding. We have two Jewish temples. Leontopolis is in Lower Egypt, so don't be fooled by that term. That's north, or it is in the northern region in the delta, so really coastal, um, in Lower Egypt. And this, this uh, community of Jews, very, very pious Jews, right, kept the Sabbath, dietary law, <coughs> circumcision, did not perceive the establishment of a temple outside of Jerusalem as anything but an extreme expression of their devoutness. So to them, this is absolutely not heretical. Uh, and we'll see that in the Mishnah, the Talmud, there are big debates over how to deal with this. Because on the one hand, these Jews are observing their ancestral law, and on the other hand, they're doing this crazy, terrible thing, which is they're building a temple outside of the Jerusalem temple. So, all right, so we have Elephantine, we have the Antipas. But the crowning jewel of the Egyptian Jewish community, the place where we have evidence of hundreds of thousands of Jews who built many, many synagogues and wrote many, many pious documents is not Leontopolis and it's not Elephantini, it's Alexandria. Alexandria was the New York City of the ancient world. And uh, the reason why I say that is because, do you, are you, um, you okay? Oh. Thank you. All right, so we're talking about Jews in the diaspora, but we're specifically talking about the Jews of Egypt. Alexandria was a melting pot of the ancient world. And the reason is, it has largely to do with its geography. Now, if you think about the Roman Empire, or even before the Romans, if you think about the Greek Empire, and you think about how we need this map yesterday, I'll make it again. Can I erase this? Mm -hmm. Can I erase it? Okay, so we have Elephantini, Leontopolis, they both built temples, and then we have Alexandria, many, many, many synagogues, no evidence in Alexandria of a Jewish temple, but who knows? Who knows what's under the ground over there? Okay, so mm -hmm. this is the ancient world, right? So one thing that we emphasized yesterday is how Judea, the land of Israel, is prime real estate in the Hellenist Empire, right? We have uh, the Seleucids over here, the Antiochus over here, the Ptolemies over here, right? And then we have this real estate over here. Everybody wants Judea. We'll come to Galilee, the sea, okay, my terrible map. All right, the Delta over here. Okay, Alexandria is a port city. And so, really, it's, it's a place where if you're coming from Rome, right? Rome is not, in the third century BC, a major empire, but it's there. And uh, we have, obviously, the Mediterranean Sea over here. We have Italy. We have Greece, right? And so, Alexandria was a very important port city. And because of the fertility of the Nile, of course, here's the Nile, right under the port, um, this was uh, a place that mass-produced um, uh, produce. So it was exporting a lot of food to the rest of the empire. Um, it was uh, an economic center, and the thing about 
uh, Alexandria is also an intellectual center. So in the 3rd century BCE, Ptolemy II Philadelphia says, okay, we're going to build this mass museum. And the whole goal of this museum is to, build, is to include every single book ever written anywhere. Now, we don't actually know if this materialized, but this is the goal. And the, um, the museum includes philosophical schools. It wasn't only a museum, it was the house of learning. So the museum is where the cynic uh, philosophers in the 4th and 3rd centuries BC would go and talk to each other and debate. And their inheritors, their successors, the Stoics, would come and they would learn and they would study. And um, then we have you know, all sorts of 4th century BC Roman intellectuals who are coming to Alexandria. So on the one hand, we have this hub of intellectual activity, and we also have this commerce, right? It's a commercial center. And so, of course, you may not be surprised that the Jews are very, very attracted to Alexandria. And Josephus, the 1st century CE historian from Judea, remember he ends up in Rome, he says that... Um, Jews moved to Alexandria, and Josephus sometimes exaggerates, so this is like one of these questions, how, how should we read Josephus, but I'll tell you what he says, you can make your own evaluation. Jews moved to Alexandria from the moment that Alexander the Great founded the city. Now I do think that there is some sort of polemical effort there to legitimize the presence of the Alexandrian community, and we'll see that they really, really suffer. These Jews, you know, we know these patterns of history, they reach a certain level of success, and then things really fall apart for them. And we'll see that the Jews in Alexandria are essentially wiped out by the year 118 CE. So we're talking about a community of Jews that reaches probably over a million. And that's Alexandria and the region of Alexandria. Here's the Antopolis. We don't know, maybe a couple thousand Jews are in the Antopolis. And then we have Elephantine, right over here in my invisible Nile. We have Elephantine, a couple hundred. I mean, this would be a very, very small community. But you can also imagine that there are Jews all over the, this region, right? And then, by the first century CE, you have Jewish Christians, and they should be considered as part of the Jewish population because there was no separation between Jews and Christians in the first century. So what you have is just a mass concentration of Jews, more of a concentration than anywhere else in the Greek or Roman um, Empire. And we talked yesterday about um, how Philo, the early first century CE philosopher who lived in Alexandria, says that there are five sections of the city, right? Five sections. Each section is named after a Greek letter. So we have Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, and Epsilon. And Delta is all Jewish, Philo says. It's completely Jewish. And there's a, what's called the Great Synagogue of Alexandria is in Delta. And even the Talmud, in, uh, we're going to see in the Tractate Sukkah, uh, uh, I think I have it on the, maybe I, I think that I do, talks about the Great... Um, the great synagogue of, of um, Alexandria, but Philo makes sure to emphasize that throughout all five sections of the city, there are synagogues, which means that in all five sections, there are Jews. So Jews is not a ghetto, right? Jews are not confined to Delta. It's simply like today, right? Jews find each other, and that's where they tend to be, but there are Jews throughout the city. Okay. So there are estimates, based on how large Alexandria was, that the Jewish population of Alexandria was between 180,000 and 1 million. Okay. Yeah, this, that's a lot of people, right? That's a lot of people. We're talking about probably the most important city, at least in the 2nd and 1st centuries BCE, in the Greek Empire. 
and then the Roman Empire. Absolutely. Yes. Is, a, is there a famous library in Alexandria? Yes, so the museum and the library are the same. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also where the philosophers would meet, right? Mm. All this, yeah. Okay. Um, really like the crown jewel of the city. Yeah. And also, I think when we talk about ancient cities, sometimes we think of like these little walled up, very small cities. But Alexandria was a very open, Alexandria had suburbs, and it was very, very widespread. And on the far outskirts of the city, you had fields and you had farmers. So it was just like a very, very spread out, very large city. Yes, and we'll go temple, you mean a place where sacrifices are thrown? Yeah, so there are two temples in Egypt, the Antopolis and Elephantini, and there are animal bones that have been discovered in these um, archaeological sites. So these are temples. Temples Did brought by Jews who were perceiving themselves as totally pious. Something that we really don't usually learn it's about. Kohanim and Levium. Ah, okay. So, not necessarily. No, not as I, with Leontopolis, so that's founded by Ananias, who's a priest. And Josephus says he's a very firm priest. He's better than the priest who administrated in the Jerusalem temple. So we can trust that Ananias probably tried to do things by the book, whatever that would mean if you're in Egypt building a temple. Elephantine, we don't know. We, we really just have the papyri, so we just don't know. Okay, so now I want to focus on first century CE Alexandria. And I want to just give you a heads up because when we look at some of the sources, you might feel like you want some historical context. So things were going very well for the Jews in Alexandria. Um, all right, what do I want to read? Can I erase this all? I'm doing it. <laughs> okay, so you know that in 63 BCE, the whole world essentially goes from being Hellenist to Roman. A lot of scholars don't like the term Greco-Roman world. I also try to avoid it, but then it's hard because you like get very clumsy. Scholars don't like to say Greco-Roman world because it suggests that they're the same, right? They're the priests, they're the Romans, they're all kind of Greco-Roman, it's one culture. It's really not. Like Judeo-Christian. Right. Right. It's really not. You have the Greeks and you have the Romans. And in 63... No. I mean, I'm not pointing to one battle. There's the invasion of Pompeii, but but when we shift to Rome being, I mean, I figure there are series of that. I don't have one battle in mind. But when we shift to being under the Roman world, and this happens in the 60s BCE, I'm saying 63 BCE because that's a very important year for Judea. But in the 60s BCE, as Rome is taking over the territory of the Greeks, what we have in Egypt is a reorientation of who's on top. So it used to be the Egyptians, the indigenous people were like very, very low, and then under the Egyptians maybe you had the slaves, or hundreds of thousands of slaves, right? And then maybe next to the Egyptians, or maybe above the Egyptians, you have the Jews, and then you have the Greeks, the Greeks are on top. When the Romans come, they smush everyone down. Suddenly, the Greeks are chopped liver, right? And the Egypt, everyone's pushed lower. And by the way, under the Romans, hundreds of thousands of more slaves are accrued. So by the first century CE, you have a massive slave population in Rome, uh, in the whole Roman Empire. So what you have is this effort to push down everyone under you. And the Jews really suffer um, at this effort. You also see from Greek and Jewish writers a constant insulting of Egyptians. So you see, even in Philo of Alexandria, who's like a from Jew, 
He's always making fun of Egyptians. If you read his writings, oh, that guy was ugly like an Egyptian. I mean, really bad stuff, really bad stuff. But that was the culture. That's, I, I don't like to make a modern parallel, but you know, we talk about like immigrants in a derogatory way, or we talk about, well, I guess this would be like more Native Americans, because they were indigenous to the, to the land, but they were really looked down on. They were really looked down on. So we have this situation where things take a downturn in the second half of the first century uh, BCE. But uh, things are okay. We have here a rise of anti-Jewish literature. And I'm not going to go into it right now. I mean, there's a lot of scholarship on this. And we have a spike here. And <coughs> yesterday, I mentioned, I think it's in 59 BCE, that Cicero, the Roman orator, Cicero gives a speech to the Senate banning the export of gold to Jerusalem. He says, all right, guys, we cannot keep letting these Jews send money to Jerusalem. We have this speech, which is unbelievable. So Cicero gives an anti-Jewish speech. Cicero is like consistently anti-Jewish. I mean, smart guy, smart guy. Hates Jews. Okay, Cicero gives a Why does he hate Jews? That's a $64,000 question. Well, let's, we'll focus on this speech. In this speech, he wants to ban the export of gold to Jerusalem, and he wants his ban to apply to Jews all over the, the Roman Empire. So we have a rise in awareness of the Jewish population, and a rise in concern of what are we going to do about these Jews? They're taking our good jobs, they're diverting money. Yeah, I know, what else is new? Okay, so what I want to focus on is, remember there's no year zero, that's like a fun fact for your next cocktail party. It goes from 1 to 1, right, 1 BC to 1 CE. Okay, I want to focus on the events of 38 CE. These, um, oh, that's ugly, I'm going to put it that way. 41, there we go. Okay. Um, these years are catastrophic for the Jews of Alexandria. And so are these. And so are these. Now I'm just joking. That's part of the Okay. In 38 CE, we are dealing with a new emperor. He was a appointed emperor in 37. And you might know him by the name of Gaius Caligula. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ah, see, whenever I teach this, yeah. and ever, whenever I say Caligula, everyone goes, oh, we all heard about Caligula. He's the worst. And he was. The first thing Caligula, now Caligula takes over for an emperor who is a gentle soul and does not really want to intervene firsthand in much of anything at all. His name is Tiberius. Right before Tiberius, we have Augustus. He's known for claiming to be a god. Right before that, we have a Caesar. Okay, Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius. Caligula, we have Claudius. Now I'm just showing off. <laughs> Here, um, That's the one in the okay. What I heard okay. was yeah. Caligula means little pig or something. It was uh, a, a, a nickname. Little booty. Little booty. Caligula. Cute little booty. And he hated that nickname. It was a nickname. Okay, he hated that nickname. Right. Not, not uh, very nice for him to have. So what does Caligula say? He says, one of my big goals is that I am going to put a likeness of my beautiful self in the synagogues. Not only that, I will put a likeness of my beautiful self in the temple. Now by this time, thanks to Augustus, Romans have to be, Roman emperors have to be revered as gods. It used to be that after they died, who's Augustus? After they died, then they would kind of be revered as a god. But Augustus says, no, 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 guys, well, I'm living, I'm a god. It's like a radical change. I want my picture on yeah, the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So like, here I am, and I'm a god. That's Augustus. 
Tiberius doesn't really follow through with that, but Gaius Caligula is riding that wagon all the way. He is ready to be a god. And so when he says, you need to put basically an idol, a statue of my likeness, in the temple, there's an uproar among Jews actually throughout... Um, throughout the Roman Empire. The Jews are very, very up in arms about this. And uh, we have most of our evidence about this incident from Philo. Okay, so Philo, um, his years are, are estimated, but around 20 BCE to 50 CE are his years. Very important Jewish philosopher. We also know about this from Josephus. Of course, the question with Josephus is, He's just using Philo. I mean, we don't really know exactly what his sources are, but he does have information that's not in Philo. Remember, Josephus' years are uh, 37 CE to around 100. So we know that there was an uproar. Um, and we know that people were very, very, very unhappy. With this uproar came a catalyst event in Alexandria that gave rise to terrible, terrible anti-Jewish riots in the city. And this catalyst was the visit of a descendant of Herod, a Judean by the name of Agrippa I. Yes, yeah, so a Agrippa. Agrippa, yeah. Agrippa, yeah. Agrippa, yeah. And this is all in Philo? Yeah. Philo's right. We have lots of questions. We have lots of questions. Yes, please. Hemet is that doesn't refer at all to, to this. Hemet Selem Behecho. I don't know. I don't know. Good question. Is Philo documenting this? He's the historian? Yes, okay. So Philo, I wouldn't call him a historian, but Philo writes two texts. One is for Flaccus, Flaccus, or Flaccus, but we say Flaccus because we pronounce the Latin correctly, is, um, Flaccus? Flaccus? I don't think so. No, 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 there's an English word. Oh, okay. So he's a Roman prefect who oversees the riots in 38 CE, the anti-Jewish riots, and he basically sits back and relaxes and lets it all happen. So four o'clock is sort of an ironic, I'm writing this for you, buddy, but really he's writing it for the Jews all over the Roman Empire. He also writes another text, a very, very sad, actually very heart-wrenching text, called On the Embassy to Gaius. But let's do this in order. Before we talk about these texts, let's just talk about what happened. Agrippa is traveling from Rome to Judea. He had had a good relationship with Tiberius. Um, we now have a question. Like, oh yeah, Claudius comes after Caligula. I'm like, I'm 98% sure, but now I'm getting. Okay, so Agrippa has has had a good relationship with the Roman emperors, um, and not a very good one with Caligula. He's trying to make amends with the court, and uh, he is not exactly a king, right? Because he's a uh, he's a descendant of Herod, but. By now, Judea is part of the Roman Empire, but he's, he's given, ultimately, he's given some sort of independent jurisdiction over Judea. Uh, not independence, mm-hmm. but some sort of jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's known in the New Testament as Herod. That's confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's confusing. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, okay, what did I say? Okay, so he's traveling from Rome to Judea, and he stops in Alexandria, as many were wont to do. That's what they would stop. That's what they would probably fill up on. Oranges. I was gonna say gas. And uh, and so he made a stop. And the um, Philo says that Agrippa knew that there was so much anti-Jewish uh, feeling fomenting the city that he knew that he had to come stealthily into the city. And he came specifically at night so that it would be like under the radar. But even so, his visit 
caught wind, people found out that he was visiting the city, and what they did was the next day, after they found out that Agrippine was in the city, they got the town fool. They got some person who wasn't, you know, totally all there, right? And they dressed him up as a king, and they put a crown on him, and they danced him through the city, and they said, all hail King Agrippa. Uh, similar, actually, to what you see in the New Testament, yeah. how Jesus is mocked yeah. with a crown, and oh, king of the Jews, actually, a little weird. It's mm-hmm. very, very similar. Um, I'll come back another time and teach the New Testament to Drisha, right? Okay, so they... they bring this person through and they're mocking him and what ultimately happens is that people just get out of control. Uh, thousands of Greeks and Egyptians and probably Romans as well from what Pharaoh tells us get so worked up at this parade which is more of a charade uh, and, and this guy who's pretending to be Agrippa that they just go nuts and they start setting fires and they burn down synagogues and they attack Jews, and they raid their houses, and they kill people. This is in which city? This is in the year 38 in the city of Alexandria. So this is a really, really great tragedy that unfortunately, you know, we don't know so much about from rabbinic literature. There might be some allusions to it, but, uh, but this is really a great tragedy. What Philo does is Philo is known as one of the most important intellectuals of his day. Not only is he an important intellectual, but he's also from a very wealthy family, which, by the way, in the ancient world is necessary to become an intellectual, right? Because he had the means to sit and read books and write all day, so he was very fortunate in that regard. And so he's regarded in his time as someone who's a leader of the Alexandrian community. He is sent to Rome to complain about the riots. And he is sent with, with uh, in what he calls an embassy, an embassy to Gaius. He says that he had four compatriots with him, that, it was, that there were five delegates, five leaders from Alexandria, all Jews, who came to Rome. Josephus, by the way, says it was three. So we don't know where Josephus got that, but we'll trust Philo because he's one of the delegates. So Philo says that he's one of five delegates. By the way, I know we're running a little late, so I think, I'm not sure what we're going to do yet about the Chabruta, because there are a lot of sources, and I really want to give you this background. So I think, yeah, no, that I fixed right. it. The clock is wrong. Oh, did it slow down? Yeah, it's 2.04. Oh, it did slow down. Sorry. Okay, well that's actually good. So then you know what we'll do? I will tell you a little bit more about the Alexandria community. At 2.15, we'll break for Minha, and at 2.30, we'll be with you. I think we're not going to do Chabruza, because I really want to do the sources, but we will take turns reading. You know, I'll ask for a reader, so it'll be a little more interactive, but I don't think that we're going to have time for Chabruza. Also, I have to run out at 4. Yesterday, I did not leave enough time for questions. I really ended the talk at, like, 3.58, so I want to try to end at 3.50, or maybe 3.55, so you have time for questions because I'm going to be very rude and I'm going to run catch my plane. So I think so. We'll, I'll do a little bit more lecture, mincha, and then we'll look at the sources as a group. Okay? Sounds good. Okay, great. Alrighty. So you know, I tried to fix it and then it slowed down again. No, no, sure. no, no, no. Okay. Okay. All right. So Philo and his friends go to Alexandria to appeal to Caligula. And they were very, very insulted. They were treated very dishonorably. They take this long trip to Rome. To Rome. And by now, he's not a young man, right? Probably he's around 58, right? If, if the estimates are correct, he's not, he's not young. He takes this arduous trip. And um, basically, Gaius Caligula laughs in their faces. 
And Gaia says, I'm not going to meet you in my big meeting hall. Walk with me. I have some errands to do. So these Jews are sort of walking behind him. And Caligula sees his, like, bush cutters. And he's like, oh, you need to cut higher. And then he sees some kind of ladder. And he's like, oh, you need to work harder. And he's talking to all his workers doing various construction work in the palace. And Philo and his friends are just like, what, what do we do here? And they're sort of following him. And then at some point in this weird situation where they're following Caligula walking through the palace and the palace garden, Caligula turns around and says, you're wasting your time. There's no way I'm going to help the Jews out. Uh, go home. And Philo talks about how humiliating this whole ordeal was and also the fact that Caligula delayed saying it. He didn't say it at the outset. Right. He took them on this long walk where he's constantly talking to other it's people. Annoying. And then finally he turns around and he says, Jews, go home. And you can look this up online. I think most of the it's not a good translation online because the good translation is Low Classical Library, LCL, and that you have to pay for. But there's like a pretty neat translation online um, that you can get if you search per or per se, if you just search per se, you can get online on the Embassy to Guys, the last six paragraphs are heart-wrenching, where he says, you know, why is the Jews of Alexandria uh, that this crowning jewel, the Jews in the greatest city in the Roman Empire, are unprotected. By not protecting these Jews, Gaius Caligula has made every Jew in the world vulnerable. And once our synagogues aren't going to be protected, because that he felt that, and what's interesting here is that he's not really talking about the Jews of Judea. He's not saying, yeah. you know, we uh, were comforted that we still have this temple that's thriving and doing well. He really doesn't talk about the Jews in Judea. He's talking about the Jews of Alexandria. To him, this is the center of Jewry. Just fascinating. He says, once it weakens, everyone is vulnerable. And once our synagogues are attacked, this is actually creepy, I think. It's so prescient. Yeah. He says, once people start attacking our synagogues, Jews in synagogues all over the world will be vulnerable to attack. He says it. It's explicit. I'm not making this up. You have to look it up. Uh, it's very, very heart-wrenching. I have some philo in the source sheet. Okay, so I want to skip ahead. Now, we know this is a very, very turbulent time in the Roman Empire. Um, so we have, we have Claudius and we have Nero who commits suicide. And then we have, uh, in 69 CE, we have a fight between four people who are claiming the power to the throne. Four people, right? And they're all trying to be empire. This is why, by the way, the rebellion, the Jewish rebellion against Rome in 66, uh, takes so long to put down, right? It's put down in 70. Rome is a mess right now. Rome is just a mess. And then when the rebellion is put down, it's put down with incredible force by Vespasian. And it's done Titus, and Titus' brother Domitian, the Flavian dynasty. Why did Vespasian insist on just coming in there with way more cavalry, way more soldiers than he needed, and just putting down? Because he was trying to establish his position as emperor. He had been fighting three other guys um, for two years for this position. So when Vespasian comes in, he comes in with a lot of force. This is a very, very hard time for the Jews, especially the Judeans. We'll call this the Jewish Rebellion, right? And uh, yesterday I talked about the three Jewish rebellions, right? We have the one, the big one, 66 to 70. We have Bar Kokhba, which a lot of people know about, right? It's a huge disaster in Judean history. And then we have this little one, the word quiet, the word Quito. And scholars really do not know how this war was started, but we do know from Roman historians mainly that the Jews of Alexandria were really, really wiped out. At this point, we have no evidence 
of a large Jewish population in Alexandria ever again. That's it. That's it for them. They either leave, or they assimilate, or they're killed. Probably there were uh, rebellions happening all over the Roman Empire, Jewish rebellions in 115-117, in response to uh, anti-Jewish taxation, or at least they felt very anti-Jewish. One thing you might want to note is that the tax on the Jews that was a result of 70 CE, the Fiscus Judaicus, was levied on every Jew in the Roman Empire. Would you be happy if you were a good assimilated, or maybe not so assimilated, Jew in Alexandria, and now you have to pay the Fiscus Judaicus, right? And they were very explicit that that Fiscus Judaicus goes to the Temple of Jupiter in Rome, right? I'm not that assimilated. I don't want to go to, I don't like those Jews in Judea so much, right? I'm, I'm a good Alexandrian, but I don't want it to go to the Temple of Jupiter, right? So there was this feeling by the early 2nd century that Jews are really being targeted. And we have evidence from Roman thinkers, from Seneca and Juvenal, and really esteemed uh, philosophers that uh, Jews were not well liked. Part of this is because we also have evidence that people were converting to Judaism, and that was a threat. Mm. Okay. Um, oh, hold on, I just want to say one more thing. One of the themes that you see over and over in Roman thought is talking about Judaism as a superstitio and talking about Roman religion, I was just going to write superstition, but superstitio, as a religio. So the Roman Empire is legitimate, and remember, you can't make a distinction between politics and religion in the ancient world. So the Roman pantheon is the legitimate religio, and the Jews worship their superstitious, antiquated, unsophisticated religion. That's their superstition. We see this contrast repeatedly. And so the, the early 2nd century BC is a time of real anti-Jewish fervent feeling. And it doesn't come only from the early Christians. It comes mainly from Rome. It comes from the Roman pagans. So, so this is all important to know uh, because Alexandria, on the one hand, is uh, representative of really an incredibly successful Jewish community. And on the other hand, they have a really tragic story. And that's not to say, also we mentioned this last time, and then we'll take a minute for questions, um, that there was this binary in the ancient world of either you were totally assimilated or you were totally clinging to your ancestral tradition because there was really no way to do that in the ancient world. It, uh, everyone basically spoke Greek, right? And then later, maybe did not everyone spoke Latin, but there was no way to insulate yourself. Like I said yesterday, if I said to you, are you an American or a Jew, right? Well, how, how, do, I, how do you conceive of that binary? Likewise, in the ancient world, like, most people were just living their lives, somehow identifying as a Jew, right? Many thousands of them kept circumcision, dietary law, and Shabbat, and yet they felt that they were good Roman citizens. And it was important to them. And Philo walks this tightrope in a very sophisticated way, where he says, my motherland is Israel, is the land of Israel, but my fatherland is Alexandria, right? And so he's very walking that tightrope, and it's very important to him that he's perceived as a good Roman citizen, but he refuses to abandon his ancestral law. And that's the tightrope that many Alexandrian Jews were walking. And so I don't want us to think, you know, well, it's just an assimilated community, so that's what happens to assimilated Jews. Not at all. Many of these Jews were really, they were coming to their synagogues, right? And in other parts of Egypt, they were going to their temples. So these are pious Jews. Maybe not in the sense that we think of rabbinic, normative Judaism, but pious, nonetheless. Okay, we'll take a question or two, and then Mincha, and then uh, we'll do some sources. 
Yes. So this is a huge question, but do we have any sense why Jews were so disliked in some of their economic issues, with mm -hmm. the pure irrational hatred? What, mm -hmm. what, what was, do we have any sense of what it was about? I think it comes from, the question is like, where does anti-Judaism come, come from? I think it comes from <coughs> different directions. Uh, I think there were people converting to Judaism. There were also this strange category of Romans called God-fearers, where they would keep Shabbat, or they would keep aspects of Jewish law, um, but they wouldn't convert, and other Romans hated them. Juvenile talks about how terrible the God-fearers are. Who are these Romans who think that they could just keep Shabbat and then go to the Temple of Saturn? I mean, this is unacceptable. But I think also part of it is that the, the, the way that the Jews claimed a superior narrative really irked many Romans. So a lot of the target is on their biblical history. Oh, you think Moses was a hero? No, Moses was a leper. Oh, you think they worshipped a god? No, they worshipped a head of a donkey. Right? A lot of it is trying to undo this narrative that the Jews had constructed or inherited. Okay, one more question and then that's all? No? We're all set. Okay, so we will see you. We'll uh, reconvene at 2.30 and we'll learn together. There's only so much we can do in two and a half hours. But if I have three hours, I can do all of Christianity. That's right, and I just started recording on one foot. That's right. By the way, I'll tell you this because it's another fun cocktail party detail. When, um, when the Roman official says to Hillel, tell me all of Judaism, Al Ragel on one foot. So my professor at Brandeis, Reuven Kilman, has a great. He's wonderful. So he uh, he has a great translation of this. He says everyone is wrong. This Al Ragel on one foot business is completely wrong. It comes from the Latin word regulation. Tell me one halacha that encapsulates Judaism, which explains Hillel's answer. Right? What's Hillel's answer? Don't do unto others. Right? That you oh, right. And then the rest is go And lower. by the way, there are many Latin loanwords in the Talmud, and there are even more Greek loanwords in the Talmud. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. So I'm very compelled that, you know, what, what is this guy saying? Stand on one foot hill. He's like, sure. No. He's saying, give me one regulation, one law that encompasses. Isn't that great? I love it. Okay. Yes. Yes. That'll stick with you. Yeah, you, you should propagate it yeah. in the name of Ruben Kilman. I thought he would want to take He's fantastic, yeah. Okay. Alrighty, so, um, so what we're going to do, I don't think that we're going to have time to do all of these sources, but um, like uh, the woman from that Austrian movie, we'll start at the very beginning. So Julie Andrews? Short. No, Julie Andrews. Andrews. Oh, the sound of music. Sound of music. Sound of music. Just kidding. Alright, so we're starting with Philo. Okay, no more silliness. we got to get down to the serious text. Okay, so we're starting with Philo. And Philo really walks this tightrope of trying to navigate the what it means to be totally devoted to the Roman Empire and still be explicitly loyal uh, to the Judean um, or to the Jerusalem temple. And uh, one thing you should know here is that citizenship was hard to come by in the Roman Empire. So many people, especially once the Romans take over in the middle of the first century BC, not, it's not automatic that all Greeks and Jews and Egyptians just get citizenship. 
And it doesn't really mean citizenship in the way that we think of citizenship today. Citizenship was, a, was really a way of arguing for your dignity and integrity as a person. It was very personal. It was very important. Not all Jews had Roman citizenship, and although Josephus claimed that all the Jews of Alexandria were given citizenship, most scholars question that. Uh, Philo probably did have citizenship. I mean, he sent to represent the Jews, um, the Jews to Caligula, and this is more of being granted citizenship. So many elite Jewish families were given citizenship, but with, when he talks about yeah. You can pay taxes, you got citizenship. That's part of life. I think that it was more than just paying taxes. I think yeah. that, yeah, I think that they, well, the Jews all had to pay the fiscus today. Uh-oh. But many Jews did not have Roman citizenship. Oh. And um, they had to pay the laographia, which is a special tax for non citizens. Oh. So this is like a really, the laographia. This is a really uh, just very big part of what it meant to be a Jew in the ancient world was the question of, do you have citizenship? And if you do, how do you square that with your devotion to the Jerusalem temple? So that's kind of the background mm-hmm. of these texts. So can somebody uh, volunteer to read for no one country? He's very loquacious, and it's very hard to find uh, periods at the end of the sentences, but we're going to do our best. So we have a volunteer, and then we'll get these. Yeah. For no one country can continue. Oh, yeah. We, we, yeah, page two. Thank you very much. Top of page two, and... Okay, you're welcome. You're welcome. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Introduction. Brotherland versus Fatherland. <laughs> Philo, first century CD. Yes. For no one country can contain the whole Jewish nation by reason of its populousness, on which account they frequent all the most prosperous and fertile countries of Europe and Asia, <clears throat> the islands or continents. Okay, so what is he saying here? I mean, this is really a striking okay. statement. You think we should all live in one place? We're too many. Right. There's no way, which is a very pragmatic way of saying, sorry, you're stuck with us, and we're not going anywhere, right? And, we, and also, it's good historical evidence that by the first century C, Jews were everywhere, right? And Jews really, that's at least how Philo sees it. Did you want to say something? Yeah. No? Well, they're going yeah. to get mad at us after a while. And oh, they're, they're everywhere. They're, they're taking our jobs. Taking that's what happens. Oh, and, and by the time he writes Flaccus, it's post the riot. So he's very much on the defensive, and he's aware of these anti-Jewish arguments. He's very, I mean, he's very embattled in Flaccus. On the confusion of tongues, he's less embattled. Yes, please keep going. Looking indeed upon the holy city as their metropolis, in which is erected the sacred temple of the Most High God. (laughs) I like how you paid homage to that. But accounting those regions which have been occupied by their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers, and still more remote ancestors in which they have been born and brought up as their country. Okay, so now this is the tightrope, right? The mm. motherland, well, it's the most, I feel like there's a lot of lip service, but maybe that's just me. Oh, it's, you know, the secret temple of the Most High God. Probably Philo had never seen the temple with his own eyes. <coughs> no, it's just it's important <coughs> to know that. Now, he does know his Bible, and he interprets the Bible very well. He interprets it allegorically in the fashion of the allegorical method that the Stoics um, advanced, but he does read the Bible. He reads the Septuagint. He probably did not know Hebrew, but he still, in his mind, he feels a connection. He feels a draw, like many Jews today who are in the diaspora. He feels that draw to Jerusalem, but 
The fact is, he says, the Jews have been in the diaspora since ancient times. So if he's writing the first century, what would ancient times be? Third, fourth century BC or more? I mean, this is really important evidence, once again, that by the time Darius says you can leave Babylon in exile, they're gone, but they're not going to Judea only, right? Okay, keep going. Oh, and there are even some regions to which they came the very moment that they were originally settled. Right, just like Josephus says. Josephus says, when Alexandria, when Alexander founded Alexandria, right away the Jews came, and Philo says the same thing. They came the very moment that these places were originally settled. Sending a colony of their people <coughs> to do a pleasure to the founders of the colony. And there was reason to feel as all the populace in every country taking what was done in Egypt as a model and as an excuse mm -hmm. might insult those Jews who were their fellow citizens. So citizens is a tricky word. I don't know that they were all citizens, but yeah. By introducing new regulations with respect to their synagogues and their national customs. Oh, okay. So let's, let's parse this. There was reason to fear lest all the populace in every country taking what was done in Egypt as an excuse insult the Jews who were their fellow citizens. So he also says the same thing at the end of on the embassy to God. Whatever happened in Alexandria is a petri dish or is going to be a harbinger of what happens to the Jews all over the Roman world. So for him, it's absolutely crucial that the Jews in Alexandria are respected and have a good working relationship with um, the non-Jews in the city. And so and he, he hammers this home in Bacchus as well. Okay, and so now what does he say in his treatise called On the Confusion of Tongues? Um, here you don't have to start at the beginning. You can, uh, you can start from the bold. For to those who are sent to be the inhabitants of a colony, the country which has received them is in place of their original mother country. Mm. But still the land which has sent them forth remains to them as the house to which they desire to return. Right. So now, but again, I'm not sure that this is the case. Philo could have moved to Judea anytime he wanted. Right? So he says, the metropolis, right, Jerusalem or Judea, always remains in the memory of the sojourner, or the Jew, as the motherland, the place that they want to return to. I mean, the fact is we just have no evidence of Jews moving to Judea, which I think is really very interesting in the sense that it conjures up some modern parallels, right? Well, I think <laughs> that it's very hard to live there. It was very hard to live there. Yeah. It was financially hard, right? Right? I mean, it, this, it, it was you like the Nebraska of the ancient world. It was, yeah. right, and that's why Cicero says, like, what are these Jews doing? Sending it, sending all their money to Jerusalem and not to Rome, right? What's wrong with them? They did not esteem Jerusalem. I mean, we have some material... Um, in the New Testament, they talk about Jerusalem as being a meeting place and you know, people would pass through it. But really, when you compare it to larger cities, Alexandria, Rome, and Antioch, Jerusalem was not really on the map. It wasn't. I mean, especially after the Romans had put another uh, city on top of it. Well, that's 135, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Albany yeah. in New York City. Like Albany's in the state capital. Yeah, but who cares, right? Springfield and Chicago. <laughs> Springfield is where the corruption happens, and Chicago is where the people live. Okay. okay. You have to be from Chicago to appreciate it. You have to be from Chicago. All right. So now let's talk about Elephantine. Let's go back and look at um, a very famous papyrus. We talked about this during break. This is called the Passover letter. And this is, um, this is written in 419 BC. That's not on your, um, on your packet. So it's dated to 419. BCE, 
And what's interesting here is that we have an exhortation from a Jew. We don't know who this Jew is. We don't know where he's from, which actually is crucial information. Uh, but this person is imploring the Jews of Elephantini to keep Passover in the year 419. And, uh, and so let's, let's read this together. And you have to read the brackets because that's the part where there's lacuna, where there are spaces mm-hmm. in the papyri. And so it's, it's a reconstruction, but we're going to rely on the reconstruction. All right, so uh, do you want to read? Um. To my brothers, Yadanya. And, and what's interesting, I do interrupt my readers, and I'm sorry about that. This is an Aramaic, and these names are Hebrew names. Okay, so these are Persian Jews living the Persian period with Hebrew names, writing in Aramaic. We spoke yesterday about how you can't make binaries between culture and language, right? So it's not like all the Greek-speaking Jews were assimilated and all the Hebrew-speaking Jews were pious, right? I mean, that's just completely <coughs> not how it worked then. It's not how it works now, right? We have Jews in Tel Aviv who are speaking Hebrew, eating shrimp, right? We have Jews who don't know any Hebrew who are, you know, very, very pious. So same thing then. We have Yadanya, right? And Yadanya is the one um, being addressed. Okay, does someone want to say something? I heard something. Yes, in, in, okay. in Yehu, we have, as you may have seen at the... Um, the Museum of, Bible, of, of Biblical, whatever, next to the Israel Museum, two years ago, uh, Yehud, they, we have the records. They, I didn't the see Jewish that. Community. These are, that's where these people came from. These, that's, from that, that's not Bible, that's on, and so they, no, but yeah. that's where they came from before. Yeah, yeah exactly. They have the, the records, Persian they kept their them. Hebrew names in, in the Babylonian. Not documents. all of them. No, no, this we have the records of those who did right. in that community that right. have been there for, so that's, it's not unique. That's no, it's I'm not unique. Not at all. No, Quite not common. at all. But we also have Jews who take on Greek names, right? And some of them become rabbis, like Herkinus, right? Um, okay, so yeah, absolutely. It's very interesting. I would love to see that. Okay, all right, keep going. Um, your brother Hanania, may God, the God, seek after the welfare of my brothers at all times. And now this year, year five of King Darius, it has been sent from the king of Osimus. Yeah, we don't know who that is. Yeah. Now, you thus count 14 days in Nisan, and on the 14th twilight, observe the Passover, and from the 15th until the 21st of Nisan, observe the festival on Leavened Bread. This is interesting for two reasons. I'm going to sound like an obnoxious academic, mm-hmm. but many academics do believe that originally these were two separate holidays. Right? Mm-hmm. So we have the, the Passover on the 14th, and then we have the seven days following it, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it could be that that's like a vestige of how it was once celebrated as two holidays that are juxtaposed next to each other, and then the rabbinic period it becomes mm-hmm. Passover. So that's a really, to me, I mean, very, very interesting evidence that at, in 419 they were still perceiving it as kind of distinct from one another. You have the Passover, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? The Passover commemorates when the Jews made matzah, or when God passed over their houses, right? And the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the, you know, the following seven days. Uh, so related but distinct. But that's that's not rabbinic. That's in the Torah. That's it? what I'm saying. Seven exactly. Oh, okay. Exactly in the Torah. And then in the rabbinic period, much much later, right, it becomes fused into Pesach, ah. right. So I think this is a vestige of the more biblical way of observing mm-hmm. these two holidays. Moreover, this this person is being very clear about what to do and how to do it and when to do it, which suggests that the letter writer is not totally trusting that the Jews of Elephantini know what to do. So on the one hand, yes, very interesting. Look, we have this Passover letter, and they were going to keep Passover on this island. That's so amazing. On the other hand, perhaps they really didn't know about Passover, or perhaps there was a sense, at least from other Jews, that they weren't exactly doing things the way that other Jews were doing. So 
so we can look at this from both angles. Either it's evidence that look, look at how you know pious this Jewish community was, or not necessarily. Maybe they needed instruction. So <coughs> it's interesting, but I'm not sure how much we can conclude in terms of who these Jews were. Okay, keep going. Oh no. Sorry. Seven days <laughs> eat unleavened bread. Now be pure and take heed. Do not do work on the 15th day and on the 21st day of Nisan. Do not drink any fermented drink and do not like eat... Like beer or something with alcohol, yeah. Do not eat anything of leather, <coughs> but let it be seen in your houses from the 14th day of Nisan at sunset until the 21st day of Nisan at sunset. And bring into your chambers any leaven which you have in your houses and seal them up during these days. To yeah, I mean... Brothers, yeah. and his exactly. colleagues that you're standing here. One of the interesting things here also is that we have other letters that talk about the temple at Elephantine, but this letter doesn't acknowledge the existence of the temple, right? It's from an outsider. Does this outsider know that these Jews have a temple? Right? Do they know? Because had the letter writer known, then he probably would have said, and you know, bring a sacrifice. Or maybe he knows and he's suggesting don't use that heathen temple of yours because it's illegitimate. That's actually that's another question. You know, we have a lot of question marks when it comes to this letter. Does the writer know about the temple? Mm-hmm. Big question. Yeah. Do, and do they, do, are the Jews on uh, Elephantine, do they have the Torah? Do they have scripture? Because if, they're that's not, if, great. They, if they need to be told to do this, it's suggesting they're not really reading the. That's a great question, and I don't know that we have papyri because they wouldn't have written scriptures on papyri. Right. Because. No. Right, because a pirate can dis- you would have written the scriptures on a scroll, and we don't have scrolls from Elephantines. That's a great question. We don't know. We haven't found scrolls uh, at, at the site. Maybe there will be some discovery, but not yet. So it's a great question. Okay. All right. So that's the temple at Elephantine. So that is founded in around 500 BCE, and then fast forward to 200 BCE we have the establishment of the temple at Leontopolis, a very, very different community, a bigger community, uh, not affiliated with any kind of Persian garrison. You don't have to keep fixing the clock. Is that no, no, it's, it's not the right time. I'm worried about your slide. I have mine. Okay, good. It's absolutely fine. Okay. Don't even worry about it. I have my phone. Thank you. Okay, so in 200 BC, we have the establishment of a new temple. This temple is very much on the radar of the temple authorities in Jerusalem, partly because Ananias, the priest who founds this temple, is coming from Jerusalem because there's this big break between him and the corrupt Hellenized priest um, in Jerusalem, and so he leaves. And the way that Josephus, the first century CE historian, talks about this break is Ananias is the hero. Ananias is the one who's trying to keep ancestral law, and Jason is appointing people who are his cronies and bribing Greek authorities to allow them to oust the people who inherited, by hereditary means, these positions. So Ananias is the good guy, and then he goes to Leontopolis between the delta, uh, like in the delta, so like very much in the north of Egypt, east of Alexandria, or what we call Lower Egypt, if you want to be confused. And, um, and Ananias builds this temple that lasts for centuries. Um, it is so well known that there's one whole Mishnah devoted to the question of a catch-22. What if you make a vow to bring a sacrifice? 
But the only place you could bring that sacrifice is the Temple of the Antopolis. You have a choice between two sins. You could either break your vow, which is a big sin, mm-hmm. and then you don't bring in any sacrifice. Or you bring the sacrifice, you fulfill your vow, but you bring it at that stinky, illegitimate temple, Ali on top of it, it's called Beit Chonia in the Mishnah. And this is a big debate among the rabbis, what do you do? You're going to sin, what is the big <laughs> And there's a machloket, of course. And then uh, we'll see, I don't know if we'll do this inside, so I'll just tell you that the Talmud adds to that discussion uh, an opinion that not only uh, will you do a great sin if you bring a sacrifice at Beit Chonia, but you will incur karate. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Probably by the time that was written, Leontopolis, the temple there was no longer standing. We don't have evidence that after 115, <coughs> after the anti-Jewish rise in Egypt, Leontopolis probably wasn't around, right? Okay, but it's still a discussion because, you know, the rabbis like to talk about things as if they're still standing. Okay, so let's look at um, what Josephus says about um, Anais. So uh, go to top of page four. We'll start with the second paragraph, so Ptolemy. Anais reaches out to King Ptolemy. He needs permission to go to the Antipas and start basically a Jewish community there, not just a temple, but a whole, a whole settlement of Jews coming from Jerusalem. And Ptolemy gives him this permission. And Ptolemy is portrayed as very positive, very kind, very uh, working together with the Jews. And Josephus, remember that the Ptolemies, those Greeks, were pretty good to the Jews. Remember when I said that when Judea, when Judea falls into the Syrian Greeks, specifically Syrian, then Antiochus Epiphanes IV, the Syrian Greek king, says, all right, we're, just, we're done with Jewish ancestral law. It doesn't mean all Greek leaders were like that. Ptolemy doesn't seem to be like that. Okay, so uh, did you want to read yeah. so, so Ptolemy compiled? So Ptolemy compiled with his proposals and gave him a place 180 furlongs distant from Memphis. That nomos was called the nomos of Helicals, where Anais built a fortress and a temple, not like to that at Jerusalem, but such as resembled a tower. Okay, so it's interesting. Josephus wants you to know this is not like the temple at Jerusalem. It's not an imitation. It's totally different. Then he goes into this very... Oh, are you looking for it on page four? Oh. Which Ptolemy is this? Um, this would be... Um, hold on one second. Let me think. <clears throat> okay, I'll look it up. No, I think it's Ptolemy 2. 2. Okay. Philadelphus? Look it up. Okay. Look it up. Ptolemy 2. I don't want to say with confidence. Okay. It's a Ptolemy. <laughs> okay. This is why we like you. Now we know you know so much because you're so honest. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, as long as I don't say I don't know too many times because then you'll get stressed out. All right. Okay. So keep... so. So it resembles a tower. It doesn't look like the temple. Okay, he built it. He built it of large stones to the height of 60 cubits. He made the structure of the altar an imitation of that in our own country, and in like manner adorned with gifts, accepting the make of the candlestick, for he did not make a candlestick, but had a single lamp hammered out of a piece of gold. Okay, we're really getting a lot of details from Josephus. Again, one of the fun questions with Josephus is, is what are his sources? There's no evidence that Josephus saw this with his own eyes. So, so he's using a source, but he wants to tell you that this is a very beautiful temple and also totally unlike the Jerusalem temple. Okay, keep going. Which illuminated the place with its rays and which he hung by a chain of gold. The entire temple was encompassed with a wall of burnt brick, though it had gates of stone. The king also gave him a large country for revenue and money that both the priests might have a plentiful provision made for them 
and that God might have great abundance of what things were necessary for his worship. Okay, so when it says the king also gave him a large country for a revenue in money, what that probably means is that Ptolemy diverted tax dollars from a particular region and sent them to Ananias. So Ananias is taking money from the government, but Ptolemy's being very nice about it. Yes? So why would Ptolemy want to do that? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the big question, is whatever... Was he, did Ptolemy, you think Ananias gave him some money or did something to... Uh, so we know that in the earlier paragraph, we know from, from Josephus, that Ptolemy, um, that, that Ananias promised Jewish loyalty from all the Jews of Egypt. Now, I don't know how much that would have meant to Ptolemy. But Ananias promises that all the Jews will be ever loyal to, to, to Ptolemy. I think Ptolemy just wasn't such a bad guy. You know? It sounds like you're roughly trying to make, in Ptolemy's eyes, you're roughly trying to make a, a new temple in this uh, way. Yeah. So now this Israel will become the Right, and then they won't place. go to Jerusalem exactly. on the pilgrimage so, holidays. Mm-hmm. But, but Josephus, he's not like Yerubim in the sense that, keep going. Right, he's not, but in Ptolemy's yeah. eyes. Right. Yet did not Ananias do this out of the silver disposition, but he had a mind to contend with the Jews at Jerusalem and could not forget the indignation he had for being banished thence. <laughs> Accordingly, he thought that by building this temple he should draw away a great number from them to himself. So he does want to draw people from the corrupt Jerusalem temple to his own temple, but at the same time, he is presented as being pious and devoted to ancestral law. So make of it what you will. I mean, I think that probably many modern Jews will say, okay, this is terrible. We know that there's only one temple. But one of the main things that I want to show you today is that the idea of a Jewish temple outside of Jerusalem was not unheard of. And that means they were bringing sacrifices, right? They were appointing administrators, priestly-like administrators. And other Jews right nearby were building synagogues. So just like we said yesterday, it's not like you have... Temple, 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 and then we're in the rabbinic periods of synagogue, 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 right? I mean, these, these, they're together. Yeah. Could you hear why I was giving this like turn if I'm not sure? No. Next. I would do it, but then no. I wouldn't be rehired. <laughs> no, no, I, I meant seriously because I'm thinking about the way some places do. There's nothing unorthodox well, about this lecture. No, but I mean, but but she, I, I'm not criticizing her. That's just, it. It's all good. I'm just saying that it's so against it's the common, the folklorism, or the yeah, the yeah, that there know. wouldn't be all right. I mean, but I said this yesterday. I said something even stronger yesterday, which is the whole idea that Hanukkah celebrates us versus the Greeks. It's a historical fallacy. It does yeah. not work. It's not true. We were living under a Greek empire from 334 until 200 BCE, and things were okay. So to create this idea that there's a binary of cultures that are inherently at odds with one another uh-huh. is like saying Judaism versus being an American. I, I yeah, don't yeah. think yeah. it holds. I'm not trying to bash Hanukkah. I think Hanukkah is a wonderful holiday. No. But as a historical exercise, right. it doesn't hold. Uh-huh. Right Now, you know, if I corrected... My, my kids' teachers, and every time my kids talk about the Greeks, I said, oh, the Syrian Greeks. I mean, that would be very annoying, right? I just, yeah. <laughs> like, nobody would want that. <laughs> no, nobody would think that's fine. to grow up. Right, right. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I don't get involved with my kids. No, I didn't mean it in a critical way. I, I don't feel I mean, that. I'm, a, uh, I'm totally information fine. Information purposes is the only kind of I'm, I'm absolutely, yeah, I'm absolutely fine. Yeah. Of course, one, one doesn't know, but this has a flavor of, uh, a law firm recruiting a, a, another lawyer who brings a lot of business to that firm. Or sure. Some economic or prestige advantage right. to having the temp- another competing temple there. For some reason, we don't know what it is. That's and, what, and, what it like. and building on that, we know that Jews from all over the Roman Empire were sending funds to the Jerusalem mm-hmm. temple, right? So like you're saying, maybe Ptolemy thought, okay, this is 
a good idea to get donations from all over the Roman Empire. I, I, well, it would be the Greek Empire, but I think that's a great point. Okay, what we're going to do is, I think, uh, for purposes of time constraints, I think we're going to skip the rabbinic sources because I may mention them a few minutes ago. The question, like I said, is can you, if you make a vow to bring a sacrifice, is it better to bring the sacrifice if you can only bring it at the Temple of Antiochus, or do you break the vow? And it's a machloket, and that's all I'm going to say about that. But what's interesting about these sources is that... Um, Beikonia is on the radar of the rabbinic writers, right? I mean, it's, uh, it was, this was like a present question that they had to address. Now, we don't know at what point uh, it was no longer functioning, but probably not after 115. Still, this discussion could be, you know, it's a Tanaitic discussion. It could have, it could have borne urgency. So, CE, CE, because remember we have the uh, War of Quietus from 115 to 118, uh, CE, and then we really have no evidence of a thriving Jewish population in Alexandria and in Egypt in general. There could have been Jews, but we really we don't have the, we don't have literature produced by them, mm-hmm. so we just don't have evidence of Jewish life really after that period. Um, okay, so let's go to section two, page five, the Jewish community at Alexandria. And so one of the things that really I need to emphasize is that there isn't this notion of, well, I have two choices in my life. I'm either going to assimilate and be a good Greek or a good Roman, or I'm going to hold fast to my ancestral law and shut everything out. Uh, that's just, it just didn't work that way. We looked at two Maccabees yesterday. This writer used the best Greek available, the most sophisticated uh, philosophical terms, really used dramatic techniques, like uh, the way that he and describes postures and the way it's kind of like a Greek play, uh, and yet is incredibly anti-Greek culture at the same time. So there's an irony here. Clearly, this, this person is a mesh in Greek culture, whether he likes it or not. So again, we see... Um, I'm using blogs to criticize <coughs> on the internet. <laughs> 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 right, right, exactly. So, uh, so what I want to show you is some efforts of Jews, uh, Jews who were writing probably in Alexandria or in Egypt, absolutely uh, written in Greek that we know, dated to the late Second Temple period, and what were these Jews trying, uh, how were these Jews uh, navigating their Jewish identity and their Greek identity. So the first text we're going to look at is a very famous text, and this is called the Letter of Aristea. And the Letter of Aristea is written in the 2nd century BCE, most scholars believe in Alexandria, in Greek. Yesterday we talked about um, a collection of texts that were not canonized. They're not in any Bible. And they're part of what's known as the Pseudepigrapha. So the letter of says is in the Pseudepigrapha. And the Pseudepigrapha is not a term. It's not used until the 18th century by a German scholar, Johann Fabricius. So it's not like the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is, is uh, it's a formal category that was recognized by the church, right, and, you know, very early on. The, um, the Pseudepigrapha is like an artificial word. It basically, Johann Fabricius is an 18th century, uh, yeah, in the 1700s, 18th century scholar who said, who, who basically sought out to collect all Jew, Jewish, I was going to say Judeo-Christian, Jewish or Christian texts that had religious content but were not canonized. And he called this collection the Pseudepigrapha. So now you can go to a library and you can look up the Pseudepigrapha. Some texts, uh, some volumes of the Pseudepigrapha have like 30 volumes, but more recently they have like 50 or 60 or 70 because 
as scholars discover more ancient texts, you know, and uh, these manuscripts come from the Vatican, they come from uh, St. Petersburg has a huge, a huge ancient library, they come from Greek monasteries, uh, and Mount Athos, they come from St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai Desert. These, mon these manuscripts <coughs> are mainly medieval. Oh. And in the 17 and 1800s, main Christian scholars started this effort of collecting ancient Jewish texts. Well, you say medieval, I'll write it down. You, mean, you, you don't mean they originated the They did not, but this is why there's so, much, there's so much fighting that had to date these texts. Because most of the medieval, um, most of the manuscripts are medieval. That means manuscripts. So getting back to the situation here, we have a text, letter of Arsaeus. This text, we have multiple manuscripts of this text. So in various libraries. It's part of what scholars now call the pseudepigrapha. I know this is very complicated. I'm introducing a lot of new stuff. But all scholars date this as a Jewish text, and it's clear why. I mean, this guy is defending dietary law from here to kingdom come to use a Christian part. I didn't include the part where he uh, defends dietary law, but it's clearly a Jewish writer. Um, and the Greek, a lot of the dating has to do with what kind of Greek is used. Basically, all scholars agree this is a second century BCE text. Okay, they're copied by hand. So, and by the way, this is why Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, were such a mind-boggling discovery because scholars had been working with medieval manuscripts, right? right? And then they come along and they find first century BCE scrolls. I mean, it's boggling, boggling. And then the text of Isaiah that's written down first century BCE matches almost exactly, not totally, but almost exactly medieval manuscripts. Of I mean, this is like just mind-blowing. But when it comes to Pseudepigrapha, we're working with medieval manuscripts. Okay, so this text is a letter of our state, and it talks about the translation of the Hebrew Bible into the Greek Bible, into the Septuagint. And it opens up with a petition that this character, Aristeus, goes to Ptolemy, and he says, I think it's um, like, I'm worried about, I keep saying Ptolemy too, Ptolemy too, but I actually don't know Ptolemy too. Um, goes to Ptolemy and he says, I know that you are about to initiate this project to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek for your library. The year is about 225 BCE. And I know that you've initiated this project. And as a sign of goodwill, I'm asking you, we know that you've captured Jewish slaves in your conquest. We're asking that you release these Jewish slaves as a sign of goodwill before you begin this project. And he's representing the Jewish community, and he says, you know, we would feel very uncomfortable that you're doing this big, big project, and you bring in 70 scholars, right? This is also the Thomas, 72 scholars from Jerusalem, and so we're very supportive of this project, but we're asking that you release these slaves. And in his argument, this is the opening of Letter of Aristides, his argument, he says, you know, King, we're all the same. This has to do, read my book, I'm Jewish Universalism. We're all the same, okay, we, you know, we have the same God, right? We just call him by different names. Okay, so let's look at this in size. Um, all right, so we'll start from the beginning. Do you want to keep reading? You want to sure, do another? Sure. Yeah. When therefore? Um, when therefore we came upon some opportunity for their release, as we have shown before, we spoke the following words to the king. Let it never be unreasonable to be refuted by events themselves, O king. 
The laws have been established for all the Jews, and it is our plan not only to translate, but also to interpret them. But what justification shall we have for our mission as long as large numbers are in subjection in your kingdom? As long as you still have Jewish slaves, we, you know, we can't be intellectual partners. But out of your unsullied and magnanimous soul, release those who are subject to misery. The same God who appointed them their law prospers your kingdom, as I have been at pains to show. Right. These and yeah, just to interrupt you. So you know, we think of the Greeks as being polytheistic, and they were. But also, by this time, there was a concept of Zeus being the father god. So I wouldn't call them monotheistic. Uh, but there is this concept that the Zeus is sort of running the show, and all the other gods, and they are there, but they have to answer to God. Zeus. And so what he's right. So what he's arguing is that you know Zeus, you call him Zeus, we call him Jupiter, right? Or Jupiter, yeah. Or you know we call him the Tetragrammaton, but you know it's all the same. So okay. you're saying that he's writing to be an intellectual equal with. So the king is about to have, he's about to bring in 70 Jewish scholars to translate the Bible. So so a delegation, a representative of the Jewish community in Egypt comes to me, and we don't know if this is a circle. We have this document. Okay, we don't know if this actually happened. This could be like an imaginative exercise. We don't this know. is on the eve of the writing of the Sunday. Yes, and so this guy comes and says, release the captives. By the way, Ptolemy says, sure, I will release the captives. And then Ptolemy, cre- and this is a fun document, letter of our says, because Ptolemy then hosts a symposium where all the 70 scholars come and he asks each of them an intellectual or philosophical question and they answer it and each time he's like, wow, Jews are so smart! And then he's like, let me ask you a question. Like, what's, it, They're all questions about philosophy. You have to read the document, you can get online. And then every single time there are literally 70 questions and 70 answers in the text. And each time it's like, and Ptolemy was even more amazed at the Jews. And then and also in, in the text you have a long defense of dietary law. So it's a very, very interesting document. So okay, let's get to the bold. These people. These people worship God, the overseer and creator of all, whom all men worship, including ourselves, O King, except that we have a different name. Right. Their name for him is Zeus and Jove. Yeah. The primitive men consistently with this demonstrated that the one by whom all live and are created is the master and lord of all. Okay, so that's enough. Okay, so the bottom line here, right, is it doesn't matter what name you give your God. We're sort of kind of all monotheistic. He doesn't get into the pantheon issues. But Zeus is the same thing as our one true God. We're all alike, right? And of course, you know, we could, we, yeah, we, you know, feel a need to nuance this statement. But it's, it's an important claim because the Jews were othered, right? I mean, the Jews really <coughs> were regarded as outsiders. In so the this is tongue-in-cheek? I don't think it's tongue-in-cheek. I think it's very sincere. I think it's very sincere. I just well, don't really think it's... That God is this Alexandrian Jew is trying to walk the tightrope that Philo tries to walk two centuries later. Okay. Meaning, he's devoted to ancestral law, right? And repeatedly in the text, he makes reference to the importance of the laws. Even here, he says, you know, we want to translate them and we want to interpret them, right? But we're devoted to them. And at the same time, he wants to be thought of as a good Greek. He doesn't want to be thought of as just some Jew who's isolating himself, who's ultra insular. No, I'm just like you, Jews. We're just like you. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you do interface dialogue well, then you acknowledge the differences. Okay. I'm very involved in that. I will say. I just wanted to see the truth. I'm just testing it. No, I've been at interface events that are very, very disappointing. 
because everything's diluted. But I've been at amazing interfaith events where these things are addressed. Cut off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like it is. Yeah. And then we stay friends afterwards. That's pretty good. Yeah, well, I've had more of the first kind, so. All right, so, um, okay, so let's, okay. So this reflects an effort, I think, to really try to have the cake and eat it too, right? We are great Jews, and yet don't think of us as being bad Greek citizens. We're actually, we're very, very, very devoted. Okay, so now this is a very, hard text, but we're going to do it. We're going to do the sentences of pseudo-facilities. Okay, this text is a wisdom text. Kind of like, I don't know if you've read the apocryphal text, the wisdom of Ben Sira, which is uh, it looks a little bit like the biblical Mishlei Proverbs. It's basically there's no narrative here, there's no historical context. It's literally just axioms. It's a very hard document. It's written in high-level Greek. It's also dated to the 2nd century. And scholars are sure that it was written in Alexandria. And the reason is, because Alexandria is distinct from every other place in the Greek Empire in one way. They did, um, oh my gosh, I, I just lost the word. When you open up a body after it dies. They did autopsies. I was going to say they did anatomy. They did autopsies. Yeah. They did, it was specific to the doctors in Alexandria in the 2nd century BCE. And this text talks about not doing autopsies, oh. anti-autopsies. Oh, really? This is really, really interesting. Ooh. Okay. Um, so this text, again, it's just a list of do's and don'ts. Mm. The difficulty of this text is that uh, scholars argue a lot over what are the beliefs. Is this person Jewish? Is this person, if he's a Jew, is he assimilated? So first of all, I will put my gauntlet down very confidently. This this guy is a Jew for sure. The first ten verses of the document paraphrase the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. This is a Jewish text. The difficulty here, and if I was teaching you, the, I wish I could show you the whole document. It's not that long. The difficulty is that the three main identifiers of, Jew, of Jewish identity, of Jewish observance, are absent. There's no Sabbath, there's no dietary law, and there's no circumcision. Everything that would make a Jew distinct in the ancient world is absent from this text. So he paraphrases the Decalogue and he skips over Shabbat. Which, which we have to say that again. Page 6. Oh, okay. He paraphrases the Decalogue and skips over Shabbat. Yeah, he, it, not, not here, not here. Oh, okay. in, the, in the first 10 verses right, of the... Right. Uh, and he cites ethical material that's exclusive to the Septuagint. So he says, if you are taking away eggs or small chicks, shoo away the mother bird. You don't see that in other Greek documents, but you do see it in Devarim, in Deuteronomy. And he says, if the beast of burden of your enemy <coughs> is falling under its weight, help, help that beast. That's from Exodus, right? So there are citations or paraphrases of the substitution, but it's only ethical material. So this is also really interesting because I think, uh, you know, sometimes we think of, okay, well, if you were pious, a pious student in the ancient world, well, then you had to have been keeping the big three, circumcision, dietary, and That could have been true, but here's an alternative. This person, I think, was identifying as a Jew, was proud of his Jewish ancestry, and yet is only drawing from ethical content. Mm-hmm. And uh, I chose this passage because, first of all, it alludes to the specifically Alexandrian practice of autopsy, so it really puts them in Alexandria. Second of all, again, we have an eat your cake and eat a cheese situation where this guy is saying, 
something very Greek, which is that the soul is immortal, and very Jewish, which is that all bodies will be resurrected. Mm. The idea of resurrection before the Christians come along is specifically Jewish. Did I remember to turn this on? Oh, phew. Um, it's specifically Jewish. Resurrection in the second century BC was not something that a non-Jew adhered to. In fact, the Greeks were very flummoxed by it. Very, they thought this was a very bizarre concept. It doesn't gain traction until <coughs> the Roman Empire becomes Christian, and then everyone believes oh, in resurrection. <laughs> okay, so there's a lot happening in this document. So do you want to read? You want to one question. Okay. He says, "Hey, what is that?" It's like Sheol. So in yeah. Hebrew, we talk about this like. Physical underworld, you go where you die. It not, seems to be a decent, an okay place. It's not, it's not a synonym for hell. It's not necessarily a synonym for hell. The place where you go after you die, that's a great, that's a great comment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but later, in later material, you do have this, like, physical place with fires, and it doesn't necessarily um, okay. come to the foreground in rabbinic literature, but definitely in Christian literature. Um, yeah. Okay. Read, the, read the vision of Paul on your own time. You'll see lots of people being tortured. Yeah. Yeah. Hanging by their toes and hair on fire. You can see where the medieval art gets its ideas from. Okay. Okay. Do not dig up the grave of the deceased, nor expose to the sun what may not be seen, lest you stir up the divine anger. Do not div- dig up the grave of the deceased, could be an allusion to, to autopsy. It is not yeah. good to dissolve the human frame, for we hope that the remains of the departed will soon come to the light again out of the earth, and afterward they will become God. So we don't know about the afterward they will become God's part. That's like subject to a lot of interpretation. But this idea that we, we hope that the, that the soul is reunited with its body, that's a Jewish concept. Okay, keep going. For the souls remain unharmed among the deceased. The spirit is alone of God to mortals and his image. For we have a body out of earth, and when afterward we are resolved again into earth, we are but dust, and then the air has received our spirit. Okay, so there is this idea that on the one hand, our soul just goes into the universe, right, and stays there, and then we have this other <coughs> idea that there's resurrection. I mean, this is a really <coughs> difficult text, and he... I. Scholars would say he's really trying to merge two ideas that cannot be merged. Mm-hmm. Um, reincarnation did not exist as a concept of this. No, no, no. no. Maybe in like far, the Far East, but right. no, not right. here. Right. Yeah, yeah. So this is a sentences of pseudo facilities, I and mean, this is really. Oh, I skipped the word of. Sorry about that. Yeah, this is a really, really tough text. It goes on and on like this, and a lot of the material is cold from the cold from the Septuagint, but no legal material. And so if this is representative of Alexandrian Jewry, then there is evidence of some sort of effort of Jews to remain Jews, identify as Jews, but ignore halakha. Mm -hmm. And I can confirm that from our friend Philo, who complains about these Jews, if you look at your next source. So Philo has what we call radical allegorizers, and these guys really, really drive him nuts. Mm -hmm. There are these Jews in Alexandria, Philo says, who are proud of their Jewish identity, but all of halacha, all of biblical law, and there's also by this time an oral law, and uh, we have fascinating evidence about that, we talked about that a little bit yesterday, all of the law, all the ancestral law that the Jews observe, these guys translate, uh, these guys interpret allegorically. 
So instead of doing a Brit Mila on their children, they'll say, oh, we are incorporating the allegorical meaning of the Brit Mila. Instead of keeping Shabbat, they'll say, oh, we experience a feeling of a divine rest on you know, every seven days. And Philo like, can't stand this stuff. Now, it's interesting because I think sometimes we think of Philo as being highly allegorical. And it's true, when he interprets the Bible, he does use allegorical methods. But when it comes to halakha, Philo has no patience with these clowns. He thinks you have to keep Shabbat. You have to keep dietary law. You have to keep kosher. But if you read Philo's radical uh, allegorizer's passage in light of the sentences of pseudo-facilities, I argue that we have proof, and also you could argue Aristeas, I think you have proof of an effort to identify as Jewish, but reject ancestral law. So let's look at the final so radical of Jewish. Common history, Same thing common scriptures, yeah, cultural like cultural common values, right? What else is So I wrote my dissertation about this, and I said to my advisor, not Ruben Kilman, but someone else I read it, I said, uh, I want to have a chapter at the end where I compare these radical allegorizers to reform Judaism. Mm. And she was very against that. <laughs> she did not like that. Because, you know, there's a danger in making these very broad stroke comparisons. And, you know, it just... Because it sounds like it wasn't really like outside a specific community. Or oh, what in that community world? You were in the Jewish community, you were in the Greek community, you were in the Egyptian community. Uh, that's what I'm imagining. That you couldn't, whether you practiced or not, you lived in a certain community. I don't think it was that isolated. Yeah. I think that it was actually it quite integrated. So I think that, you know, Philo said there's synagogues in every section of Alexandria. So I think that they, they lived among one another. They lived among one another, they spoke to each other. I mean, we know Philo must have attended meetings with Stoics because he's drawing on their ideas all the time. So I really don't think that, you know, we have these insular communities that are separated from each other. Um, at Lavdafka, I, I would say that they're quite integrated, and that's why we see all this fluidity and cultural sharing and fighting. Right? You can't fight with someone if you're not talking to them. Yeah. Yeah. So, Malka, you seem to be negotiating, the readings negotiating <coughs> being a Jew in, in the diaspora. Right. Well, there's a theme of anti-Semitism that you just doesn't seem to be here. There is definitely anti-Semitism. And it predates the, cru- the whole nonsense of crucifixion. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I mean, Menachem Stern, Menachem Stern has a two-volume book on writings about Jews in, Gre- in Greek and Roman literature, right? It's, well, I mean, it's yeah, my 12 page Jonathan Sturgey. Sachs spoke about this. If so, you just want to get a condensed version. I mean, there's a massive amount of material on Jews. I'm um, curious, why is that? It's just your, your limitation. Yeah, I mean, I spoke about the anti-Judaism right in the beginning of this class when we talked about the anti-Jewish riots in 38 CE and again in 115 CE. So definitely, you know, I'm acknowledging that there was a lot of anti-Judaism. This class is focused on what would it mean to have been a Jew in Egypt in the Second Temple period. And so what I really want to emphasize is that there isn't a binary of, ooh, you know, like my kids really think 
Uh, I could take this path of assimilation, like big banners. It's like assimilation, smiley face. Or like there's a big path over here, the banner that says, stay a Jew. No, I mean, that binary, it just wasn't there. There were different ways of trying to show that you were a very good Greek or Roman citizen and that you were a proud Jew. Whether or not that meant keeping halakha is the question. Some Jews did, some Jews didn't, but they still identified as Jews. That's the focus of this class. I will come into Jerusalem anytime you want, and I will teach you about anti-Judaism in the ancient world, but it would be very upsetting. What I would recommend is that you read, uh, besides Rosh Hashanah, who just collected all of it, start by reading Josephus' against Abion, because what he does there is a systematic defense of the Jewish religion, and he cites paragraphs and paragraphs of other people's writings about Jews. Including Appian, right? Appian says all these, all these, you know, pages and pages and stuff, and then he rebuts all those arguments. So read it. So it's not a factor of this, you, you sort of capture various, very wonderfully mixed cosmopolitan world. It's not a factor. I mean, look, but I said before, I think anti Judaism comes from different directions. And I wouldn't want to say it, it's linear in any way. Part of it is ingrained in some, in some of the Greeks and Romans, not all. You know, there are also very good relations with some of them. Uh, Claudius had a good friendship with the Jews and Tiberius before him, if you want to talk about emperors. Uh, So I think that part of it can be ingrained, and part of it is, like, who are these people who claim to, you know, who reject our way of life? Remember, religion and public life are kind of the same thing, especially in the Roman period. So who are these people who claim to be good citizens but are not showing up to the festival of Dionysus? And they're not showing up to this festival or that festival, and then they say they're good citizens? And Alexandria is just, uh, you said it's in New York. It, that's where things are happening, right? And that's where public life is so public, right? And so whatever the Jews are doing there, and of course it's not just one thing, there are different kinds of Jews in Alexandria, that's part of what I'm trying to show. Um, you know, Philo disagrees with these other Jews who are not keeping halakha, right? But whatever's happening there is in a sense representative of what's happening uh, in other parts of the empire. So there are these people who are saying, no, we're proud to be Jewish. We just reject, you know, keeping things. We're taking the allegorical meaning. And Philo thinks that that is crazy talk. He does not like that at all. So let's, um, so let's read part of it. I don't think we have time to read this whole thing. Um, okay. Okay, for there are some men who, looking upon written laws as symbols of things appreciable by the intellect, have studied some things with superfluous accuracy. And by the way, Philo is super hard. So if, you, if this is hard, yes, it's hard. It should be hard. Um, and have treated others with neglectful indifference, whom I should blame for the levity, for they ought to attend to both classes of things. Allegorical and literal. Applying themselves mm-hmm. both to an accurate investigation of invisible things. That would be allegorical. And yeah. also to an irreproachable observance of those laws which are notorious. Okay, so then he gives an example. Go to the very, very end of page 4. <coughs> Uh, you see the last word of page six. Or although the seventh day, the last word of page six. Man. Oh, you know what? We have a different. I'm sorry. We have a different layout. Just go to the bold. For although the seventh day. Okay. Sorry about that. For although the seventh day is a lesson to teach us the power which exists in the uncreated God, and also that the creature is entitled to rest from his labors. 
It does not follow that on that account you may abrogate the laws which are established respecting it so as to light a fire till then. Right, so just because you have the allegorical meaning which he recognizes as being the higher meaning does not mean that you are then allowed to abrogate the lower literary, the, the literal meaning. So Philo does say that the allegorical meaning of a law is the true essence of the law and when you read his other treatises he does this all the time. He talks about the allegorical meaning behind things and he does say it's the higher essence of a thing but it doesn't negate the importance of observing something literally. And so whereas I think pseudo-facilities explicitly ignores halakha to make a point that Judaism at its core is an ethical religion, Father's like, nah, no, none of that. I'm not okay with that. It's amazing this. It's like he's writing to me like 10 years ago when I started becoming religious. Yeah. Would go to the pottery studio on Shabbat. So it's like, oh, right. well, it helps me rest. Right. Like, no. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's what I love about Second Temple Judaism is I feel like some of these texts are like so live. Right. Yeah. Last chapter has a freestanding paper. Not the PhD. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> I don't know, tenure. Then I can do whatever I want. <laughs> Well, I know a lot more about the radical allegorizers than about Reformed Judaism. I'll we'll have to learn about that. Okay. Oh, my first Oh. All right. So now it's a choice of what. What's my favorite text? We can't do everything. Let's look at um. Let's look at synagogue life in Alexandria, the Babylonian Talmud. Because really, you know, the Babylonian Talmud was compiled in the 6th century CE, and it took even a few more centuries for it to be, to come to its form as we have it now. And so this is a text that, um, you know, we don't, it's very, very hard to date Talmudic passages, but this is a text that post-dates Alexandrian life, right? And this is like a reminiscent, a nostalgic text about Jewish life in Alexandria. Do we want a new reader? Anyone who hasn't gotten a chance wants to read? Well, I want to, just want to give an opportunity. Yeah, yeah, please. So, it has been taught, Rabbi Judah He was, uh, he who has not seen the double colonnade of Alexandria in Egypt has never seen the glory of Israel. So you guys catch that? He has never seen the double colonnade of Alexandria in Egypt. The double colonnade of the synagogue has never seen the glory of Israel. It was said that it was like a huge basilica, one colonnade within the other. And it sometimes held twice the number of people that went forth from Egypt. Okay, a little bit of exaggeration. Oh, yeah. I want to guess. Yeah, 1.2 million? What would that be? Like without the women and the children? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there were in 71 cathedrals of gold corresponding to the 71 members of the great Sanhedrin. Not one of them containing less than 71 talents of gold and a wooden platform mm-hmm. in the middle upon which the attendant of the synagogue stood with a scarf in his hand. And this is a very famous Talmud passage, so you might know why the scarf is there. By the way, uh, fun fact added to your cocktail party list, abima is a Greek word that means an altar. <gasps> And this actually probably speaks to the idea that there is temple imagery in a synagogue, right? Uh-huh. Bima means an altar. Okay, keep going. I just thought I would... Yeah. Why not? 
When the time came to answer Amen, he waved his staff and all the congregation duly responded. Okay, because not everyone could hear because it's so big and there were so many people. That it's, it's very famous, very, very, very famous, right? And so he waved the scarf and then people would know whether to say Amen. Okay, so now I want you to skip uh, to Abaye. Abaye stated, Alexander of Macedon slew them all. Why were they so punished? Because they transgressed the earth. Yeah. Ye shall, uh, ye shall and the force returned to no more that way, and they did return. When okay, yeah, you can stop it. Okay, so first of all, Alexander of Macedon is not the one. That's probably historically inaccurate, right? Alexander <laughs> the Great is 334-333, right? So he founded the city. But there is this memory here of incredible suffering, and that's historically true. Incredible suffering. And then there's a struggle here. They had this glorious synagogue. They had this massive community that was so big, right? This one synagogue. You couldn't even hear what was going on. It was so big. And there's a struggle here, like a sad struggle, I think, to understand why it was that, these, that this community was wiped out by the time this is written down. And the answer is because they violated the prohibition in Deuteronomy, you cannot return to this land. I mean, that's really powerful. Sound like, sound like the letter for Misa, right? The ancient community. They sent a letter to Ezra. We don't oh, yeah. going to go back. Right. So that's, that's right. Jerusalem of Vilna. Uh, right? Uh, Jerusalem, right? Vilna, Jerusalem of Lithuania. Very interesting. Like, yeah, yeah, same, yeah. Same idea. Yeah, yeah. Same idea. Right. I so because they didn't go back to, to Israel, they were punished. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying we should take that as staff. I'm saying yeah. this is the approach yeah. in the tongue, oh, right? Yeah. I mean, this is like a, it's a hard <coughs> thing to, to say you're suffering for... Whatever the reason is, I, you know, yeah. modern readers have a hard time saying, oh, you're suffering because you said... Right. That's not right. like a modern right. way of thinking, right. always. But why would uh, Abaye believe that Alexander of Macedon would sit upon himself to punish the Jews from a verse not... Uh, no, that's not... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Like an indirect yeah. And sometimes they make that. mistakes with emperors. Um, yeah, I mean, in texts, uh, in Gittin about Bar Kokhba, sometimes they say... Trajan when they should say Hadrian, whatever. Okay, so we're not sure. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. All right. So this is um, it's a very sad text. Okay. All right. So let's move forward. But so there's a memory here in the rabbinic collective mind of the greatness of Alexandria, right? And they also are highly aware and sensitive to the fact that it's lost. It's a lost greatness. So it really endured in the, uh, in the rabbinic community. I think interesting that they were separated according to professions. Don't you find that Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. That's interesting. That's according to... Yeah, that, that is interesting. Yeah. 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 In Europe also, yeah. Fascinating. The English people, the very, mm. very fascinating. Yes, there may be some elements Different of... Different Also, <laughs> their own anxiety about their own position wherever they were living. Very true. Perhaps this whole sense of the tenure, the fact that this whole community was destroyed and made a reflection on their own. Absolutely. The that's, they, yeah. they could go that way as well. Yeah, I mean, Very insightful. They're writing it about a look, right? Like it's, it's right, right, right. Right. Exactly. That's very interesting. It's very sensitive reading. Okay. So let's try to... So let's do a anti-Jewish riots in Alexandria and then we'll wrap up. Like I said, I want to leave time for questions at 3.50 because I have to leave promptly at 4. Okay. So... Um, I want to zone in now on what happened in Alexandria, and we're going to read Philo as historically reliable. Uh, he was a, an eyewitness. That doesn't make a writer historically reliable, but he's also writing to people who witnessed it themselves, right? So he's writing 
in maybe 40 or 41 CE. And so this is a polemical text where he's very, very devastated about what's happened to his city. But you know, he can't veer too far from the truth because he's writing to people. It's like Josephus' Jewish war is more reliable than antiquities, right? Because he's writing about a war that people have seen. Whereas antiquities is like, oh, I'm going to write about, you know, whatever. He's starting from the time of Adam, so it's a different kind of text. Okay, so um, I'm just trying to think where to start. So we're in anti-Jewish riots in Alexandria. Um, let's just start with, with the bold. Some they raised. So some synagogues the Romans raised. So do you want to keep... You want to, yeah. Um, page nine. Yeah, I'm sorry that my source sheet doesn't align with yours. Okay, so... Philoflatus and Yes? Do we have page nine? I omit the magical It's an embassy to Gaius. It's right after the previous source that you read. You don't have it? Okay, anyone have embassy to Gaius? Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, did I skip it? Is that possible? No, 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 no. The top of page nine. Yeah, the top of page nine. Oh, please read it. Yeah. Oh, no, bottom of page eight. <laughs> All right, we're starting on the top of page nine. I'm going to take your source sheet back and read with you. Some they raised to the very foundation, oh, and into some they threw fire and burnt them in their insane madness and frenzy, without caring for the neighboring houses. For there is nothing more rapid than fire when it lays hold of fuel. Mm-hmm. I omit to mention the ornaments in honor of the emperor. They were destroyed and burned with these synagogues, such as gilded shields and gilded crowns and pillars and inscriptions for the sake of which they ought even to have abstained from and spared the other things. But they were full of confidence inasmuch as they did not fear any chastisement at the hand of Gaius. For they well knew that he cherished an indescribable hatred against the Jews, so that their opinion was that no one could do him a more acceptable service than by inflicting every description of injury on the nation which he hated. This is really, um, this is like chill-inducing, I think. Yeah. Thank you, that was a great read. So first of all, we see the wealth of the communities, right? He's saying in these synagogues that the Romans destroyed so enthusiastically, they had ornaments, very expensive ornaments, that were dedicated to the emperor himself, and they still were so zealous in their uh, frenzy that even with these things that were dedicated to the emperor, they still destroyed the synagogues. But look at the wealth in these synagogues. Gilded shields, gilded crowns, pillars, and inscriptions. There were inscriptions that paid homage to the emperor. And these were destroyed. And also, you have to think about how much this costs. But the point here is that he's specifically arguing that we, the most devoted citizens, or if you don't want to say citizens, the most devoted members uh, People under this empire, the most loyal, right? The most devoted, you go for us, right? And that's, Philo emphasizes this over and over. We are the best, right? We didn't start up anything. We had all these things in our synagogue dedicated to you, and the irony is you're expending all this energy telling us that we're disloyal and that we need to be destroyed. I mean, you could feel... You can feel the emotion here. We German Jews That's exactly what I'm thinking. Right. Crystal Knox, except then they have the fire trucks to protect the houses next door. That's the only difference. But the patriotic German Jews, you know. I mean, things don't, things totally, I mean, yeah, whatever, history repeats itself. So, I'm just trying to think of, uh, all right, let's go to Josephus. Let's go to Josephus. Okay, do you want to keep going? It's but sure. for, yeah. Um, first, uh, yeah, but for Alexandria. But for Alexandria, the sedition of the people of the place against the Jews was perpetual. And this, from that very time, when Alexander the Great, 
upon finding the readiness of the Jews in the sixteenth and against the Egyptians, and that the reward for such their assistance gave them equal privileges in this city with the Grecians themselves. Okay, so in other places Josephus argues that the Jews had citizenship and they had it from Alexander himself. Now, whether or not this is true, it is pretty clear that Alexander gave the Jews a special status. Josephus says that that special status was granted because the Jews helped him in conquering the terrain of Egypt. Whatever the case is, this special status that was granted to the Jews uh, created a lot of resentment among other Greeks. So, so let's be very specific as to what this means, because I'm speaking in theory. What this means is that the Jews were exempt from participating in temple cults. When there were public festivals, the Jews were basically given a permission slip, like the kind you would get from your high school teacher to go to the bathroom. And this official, okay, I didn't have to, this, this official um, status basically allowed them to stay home Right, and eat their bonbons while things were going out on outside, but these were festivals to the Greek gods. And so the Jews were not persecuted by the authorities for not attending these festivals. And other Greeks who were going out because they felt a social obligation, maybe they also wanted to because it's a fun party, but maybe they didn't want to, but they had a social obligation to attend these things, and they were very resentful of the Jews next door, right? The Jews aren't living in a ghetto, they're right, they're all around town. And these Jews are just living the life, doing whatever they want with their own time, and the Greeks are resentful. Friend, what's interesting is that Josephus says it's from the time of Alexander. So we think of, um, you know, we think of like the first century and a half of life under the Greeks as being pretty good. Uh, and Josephus kind of complicates that. Now, we don't know if Josephus is right. We don't know, again, what are his sources. But he says, no, there was resentment from the very beginning. Maybe it didn't uh, actualize itself in a riot until centuries later, right, until 38 CE. But the resentment was always there. And that's very interesting. Now, whether it's true, whether it's not true, I mean... But that's what Josephus thinks, that the resentment was always there. Because the, the Jews, they wanted to be integrated, but they also wanted special status. You can't have it both ways. At least that's how the Greeks felt. Okay, so now skip to uh, for when the Alexandrians. For when the Alexandrians had launched the public assembly to deliberate about an um, emphasis they were sending to Nero. Okay, so that would put this in the middle of the first century CE. A great number of Jews came flocking to the theater. But when their adversaries saw them, they immediately cried out and called them their enemies, and said they came as spies upon them, upon which they rushed out and laid violent hands upon them. Okay, so a meeting that had nothing to do with the Jews specifically, right? They were talking about sending some sort of delegation to Nero. The Jews come, they're like, we want to be involved in this, right? And they were like, hey, get the heck out. You are our enemies, right? And this ends up being... Right, and these are things that don't make it into, I think, rabbinic history, right? I mean, yeah. a lot of the stuff we find in Josephus, a lot of the anti-Jewish violence, by the way, he talks about this happening in Antioch too, where Jews were killed and there was anti-Jewish violence as well, <laughs> and also great success among the Jews there at the same time. It doesn't make it into the rabbinic uh, corpus, and so we really need Josephus as an important source. Okay, so they rushed out and laid violent hands upon them. Okay, keep going. Uh, and as for the rest, they were slain as they ran away. But there were three men whom they caught and hauled them along in order to have them burnt alive. And all the Jews came in a body to defend them, who at first threw stones at the Grecians, but after that they took lamps and rushed with violence into the theater and threatened that they would burn the people to a man. 
And this they had soon done, unless Tiberius Alexander, the governor of the city, had restrained their passion. Okay, so the Jews, the Jews fight back. They say, you know what? No, we are not your enemies. You're going to fight with us. We're going to fight back with you. And then these a few Jews that basically were under attack were defended by a whole group of Jews who come and get involved. Anybody know anything about Tiberius Alexander? He's Philo's nephew. Oh, really? Oh, really? And Philo talks about his nephew. We also know this from Josephus. Tiberius Alexander was um, a Hellenized Jew. In other words, we think that he really had uh, abandoned a Jewish way of life. <coughs> and he was in cahoots with the Roman Empire. I think after six hours of teaching, my voice is finally <laughs> said no more. So he is Philo's nephew, and, Jose- uh, and uh, uh, what else do we know about him? Very, very wealthy, um, and is known for standing by when the Jews come under attack. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's governor. Michael Bloomberg. Ooh. Uh-huh. <laughs> now everyone has like need to make modern parallels, but uh, but no, I don't think I don't think he's a terrible guy. I think that he is caught in a very very hard place, mm-hmm. and Josephus is actually in some passages very sympathetic to Tiberius because imagine if you're in that situation and you are a Roman official and a Jew, you really are not going to please either side. So it's not necessarily like a Russia character, but definitely someone who's in a complicated situation. <clears throat> Uh, and so here, Tiberius, the governor of the city, restrains the passions of the Jews, but I think he's doing this probably for the Jews' own good. He's trying to just quell the situation, but the Jews did not like him, right? Mm-hmm. Honestly, I'm sure the Greeks did not like him either. Okay. Uh, uh, all right. So let. So I don't want to do the addendum, but I, I did make mention of this before, and uh, I would encourage you to look at this on your own. These are the sources, and I include at the very end part of Cicero's speech. This is confusing because Cicero writes a speech that's called Four Flaccus. Philo writes a treatise that's called Four Flaccus. They're two different Flaccuses. Cicero lives 75 years before Philo. So two different people. Okay. Um, so these last three sources are about this movement, essentially, to ban the export of gold. And Philo and Josephus defend the practice. So you can read them on your own time. So now I just want to um, sum up in a way that we didn't have time to do last time and then open it up to questions and conversation. Um, you know, I, I, in a way I feel bad showing you these sources because it does give a very dismal view of diaspora and jury. The, the title of this talk is Diaspora and Jury in the Time of Hanukkah. And, you know, for, for all the suffering that the Jews, especially in Alexandria, endured, it's concurrent with incredible success and integration, and I would say, like many American Orthodox Jews, a successful retention of ancestral tradition. I mean, it wasn't just like right away assimilation and done, right? These were Jews, especially Philo, right, who are proud of their Jewish heritage, but insisted on being treated as good Roman citizens. So I don't think it's a story of despair or a story of just ongoing tragedy. Uh, I think that, you know, you, can, you have to look at it through all the lens right and that includes successes and includes great suffering um, but what I don't want us to come away with is uh, thinking that you were either totally assimilated or you observed everything you know the way that the most stringent well the numbers alone speak to a, a positive presence mm-hmm. absolutely 
Absolutely. I mean, and this is only what we know about, right? We in 2016, almost 2017, have a tiny sliver of what was produced, right? It's incredible that we have what we have yeah. from from not only from Elephantini, but there's a huge cachet of manuscripts from a place called Nag Hammadi. These are Christian, but one might say Jewish Christian. The, the site is called Nag Hammadi, where we have ancient, ancient books there that talk about the life of Jesus, right? I mean, we have an incredible... Where is that? It's in Egypt. Yeah, in Lower Egypt. Um, so I'm just saying, be, because of the dry climate, a lot has been preserved, and I am sure that it's a tiny percentage of what was produced. Tiny. So you have this very thriving community. There are Jews and later Christians. Yeah. I wanted to say something right now. Remember the UN voting? Yeah. Okay. You know what the Prime Minister of the Ukraine is? He's Jew, the first Jewish Prime Minister. Right. Yes. Jewish okay. Prime Minister. And to think I left? That's why there's no update the model right now. So that's like the Tiberius character? Right. I mean... Uh, you actually see with the whole Herodian family, and they converted to Judaism, right? Herod's father, Antipas, converted mm-hmm. to Judaism. So they're, they're Jewish, even though the Jews didn't totally accept them, they reach incredibly high levels of success in government, right? And the Hasmonean, the descendants of the Hasmoneans, um, they all intermarry, they all marry each other, but also incredibly high levels of success um, in the government. So, you know... Yeah. So, uh, if you like, in the Roman world, um, if you rebelled against uh, Rome, uh, the Romans will not do not treat you very kindly. If, if you go to Rome, you see some of these steals where they show pictures or, yeah. of what. So, I guess the question I would have is: We know about Jewish history because we preserved it, but um, was the, in the ancient world, were, do you have any sense that we were treated any worse than any other small? That's group? a great question. Um, I think. Uh-huh. I, so were the Jews treated differently from other groups? So like the Anglo-Saxons, there's some some the Anglo-Saxons they rebelled against uh, Rome and they also they yeah. slaughtered them and yeah. that's, that's what the Romans yeah. did. I mean, if you look at Josephus and you look at the Jewish War, which chronicles basically the events of the first century, he doesn't start from 66 CE. He starts from the beginning of the first century because he thinks that the Romans were instigating this by just. Um, being antagonistic, and he doesn't blame the emperors as much as he blames the Roman prefects, who are just natural anti-Jewish, or you might say anti-Semite guys. Now, I'm not saying that the policy of the Roman Empire was to target Jews. I don't think that's the case. But I think locally, the Roman officials in Judea provoked the Jews. And Josephus has all these examples of this happening. There was one pagan person who was who took a pot outside of a synagogue on... Um, the Sabbath, and he turned it upside down, and he took a bird, and he started slaughtering it. He sacrificed it outside a synagogue in the Galilee, and he said, I'm at the temple, here I am with my bird. And the, this is in Josephus, in the Jewish War. And uh, the, some of the Jews from the synagogue complained to the local Roman prefect, because by now Judea was part of the Roman Empire, and they, <coughs> these guys were arrested. The they said, Yes. And then, they're, and then they're, they were levied higher taxes. So then the Jews tried to complain about So Jews... Oh, gosh, what's his name? Oh, my gosh. Oh, what's the prefect's name? Oh, man, I'm so upset at myself. No. Uh, no, later. This is in the 50s. Pontius is earlier. Oh, my gosh. This is going to annoy me. Okay. It's something with an all. A-U. 
Aurelius. Okay, it doesn't matter, but it's annoying me. So, Wait, who was talking The Roman prefects arrest these Jews who complain to him. Oh, he arrested them. And then he ultimately releases them, but he levies a tax on that Jewish community. And Josephus says this is one of the reasons why the Jews of the north began to feel very anti-Roman. But what's interesting is Josephus says all these things that he says contributed to the rebellion, and some of them he blames the Jews for. You know, the Jews are rebelling, and there, there are these messianic claimants. There's a guy named Yehuda who claimed to be uh, Mashiach, and he wants to rebel, and he also blames Roman authority. So Josephus, in his own way, is walking a tightrope where some of the reasons he gives for the Jewish war are because the Romans were at fault, and some were because the Jews were trying to, you know, they thought they were on the cusp of the Messianic age, and they were trying to gain autonomy like the Jews in the Hasmonean period, right? We talked about that yesterday, how they're trying to imitate another Hanukkah story, and they're saying, all right, God saved us in 175 BC, God will save us again. Uh, again, it's not Roman policy necessarily to target Jews until the end of the first century with the Fiscus Judaicus, and I do think that that's targeting, right? Because all the Jews had to suffer for the rebellion that happened in Judea. And uh, what's very interesting, and maybe I'll stop, or we'll take another question after this, is that the celebration in honor of quelling the rebellion in Judea is equivalent to the conquest of an outside nation. So Judea is inside the Roman Empire, right? But when the rebellion was quelled, they had this big triumphal procession, right? And they had the Arch of Titus erected, they had even another arch erected that's not excavated yet but they had or maybe it was it was um steve fine talks about this but there was a second bigger arch that's no longer standing and uh, they had this big pri- triumph into rome right with all the stuff that was in jerusalem and scholars point out that this kind of celebration would only happen in the roman empire when they conquered territories outside of the empire so what does it mean that they're doing this kind of celebration for conquering Judea, which is in the empire? It means that for them, psychologically, Judea is not really Roman. They're outsiders, the Jews. They're incorporated into our empire, but they're not really Roman. So when we conquer the rebellion, we are con- it's a conquest of foreign territory. And so this really speaks to this kind of, where they targeted... It's hard to answer that question. Under certain emperors, things were okay. Tiberius was good to the Jews. Claudius was pretty good to the Jews. Look, uh, Nero persecuted the Christians, like, very, very terribly. They weren't Christians yet, but Jews who followed Jesus, Nero was very terrible. It depends. It depends. But the the Flavian family, right? So Titus, uh, of the Spasian Titus Domitian, were very wary of the Jewish population. And that extends into the second century with uh, Trajan and Hadrian. It does. And then it kind of gets, it tapers down a little bit later on. Yeah, so it's, it's a complicated question, so I'm giving you a complicated answer. Okay, yes. Yeah, so, no, no, no. That's honestly how you say Yeah, two more questions, I'll wrap up. Not yeah. a question. Oh, okay. A uh, comment that the Jews had come down through Roman legions, and that was really very taxing on the empire. Uh, they what? Three Roman? Three Roman legions. That they were the the uh, the, the rebellion was so p- profound and yeah. they were so successful that they stationed you know a major military presence. Yeah, and which was very costly to them. And hence the celebration when the Romans finally just put the yeah. I mean the Colosseum was built with the money that was looted in Jerusalem. Oh really? Yes, and yeah, I have all sorts of evidence about that, but you're gonna have to email me. But fascinating evidence about 
the money being funneled directly to build the college. Boy, that gives me a different perspective. Yeah, read Louis Finkelstein's article. I think it's yeah, I think it's his article. How they found um, they found a boulder right outside the Colosseum with uh, holes in it, and they had nailed Greek letters into the boulder. And the scholars were able to reconstruct what reconstruct what was said based on where the holes were, because Greek letters were like nailed through. And what it says is a dedication to the Colosseum in celebration of Titus's defeat of the Judeans. Wow! I have to feel free to email me. I will send you all these oh, articles. Yeah. But well, but part of that is also didn't they take the clay? They took the clay mikdash back with them, so it gave yeah. them more power. I mean, that's, they, that's they, what they would do when they, they were would taking conquer a foreign, a foreign enemy. They did that with all of them. But, but Judea was foreign. And that's what's incredible. But, but the Jews were never viewed as completely integrated. All right, one more question. That's an appropriate final question. Uh, you mentioned how 10% of the empire, <laughs> as you began this talk, synagogues throughout the empire, are we in any way descended from any of those? Now, what became of... All those that I mentioned. Yeah, I mean, right. I think that they what did. What happened with all the rest? I think many Alexandrian or Egyptian Jews did migrate to other regions that were more hospitable mm-hmm. to them at that time, but many assimilated and we just don't know what happened to them, and others were killed. So, you know, to keep to track that kind and of so thing is like basically impossible. We have descendants of the people from throughout the empire, the synagogues. I, I don't know that we have that kind of that, lineage. That's the question. Yeah, I wish I knew. 